So if you look at it, you know, I can give you the contact details uh, for, for a friend of mine uh, who would then put you together. He's a real lovely guy. He's turned his life around. Yeah. And I think he's, you know, I think he had one of his legs. <laughs> he's, he's turned his life around because he's got his leg chopped off. But no, he's uh, he's, he's a lot older now. And uh, I think. Do we keep you know, that in? He's turned his life around because he's got his legs chopped off. No, no. This is podcast number 100 and God knows what. We We're here with Terry and Terry has done almost two decades in the prison system. He's turned his life around. We've got all of his books laid out right here. We're going to be going over them at the end. Life of Crime, three different stints and some really dark stories about some of the characters he was doing therapy with in prison. But before we get to all that, thank you very much for coming on, Terry. Thanks for having me, Sean. Where are really you from? I'm from London, uh, Camden Sand. Whereabouts is that? Uh, it's just near King's Cross, Hampstead. Okay. So got King's Cross, Hampstead, um, Camden Sand in the middle. Is that where you're born then? I'm born and bred, yeah, in Camden, yeah. Yeah. And what was it like for you growing up? You know, you know, it was... It was uh, it was a normal life as far as, as normal could be, as far as, you know, we all went through the same in the area. Um, we were surrounded by poverty, but as young kids, we never sort of realised that. Um, but I guess we was all in the same boat, um, and we just accepted the fact that that's, that was life. So what led to you getting into crime? Um, I think my peers. You know, for me, it was, um, you know, my dad was an armed robber. He'd always uh, done a life sentence for murder. Your dad was an armed robber who did a life sentence for murder. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Can yeah. you just can you just give us the backstory on that first? Thing? Um, yeah, he's, uh, he he was an armed robber, and they they went on a on a on a bit of work, as they used to call it. And uh, unfortunately, a security guard got shot and got killed. Um, he ended up getting eighteen years. And how old are you when he got sent down? Oh, I I think I was about seventeen then. So, uh, what impact did that have on you psychologically? You know, um, you know, I always knew that he was at it because you know, from from a very early age, uh, you know. We come from, from Camden Town, King's Cross, Islington. You know, we got some big families around there. And, you know, when you're in that company and everyone you know is a criminal, um, it becomes normal. So, you know, I, you know I used, we used to go certain places. We could buy alcohol, or he did, uh, food, clothes, everything, but never in shops. So, you know, we've, I've, I've, I sort of learned very early that everything came off the back of a lorry. Yeah. And everyone I met was actually, actually at it. So, you know, to go into a shop was alien for me. Yeah. Unless I was going through the window or the proof. <laughs> There's not many guests I'm usually looking up at. How tall are you? Because I'm 6'1". I'm, I'm just 6'1". I'm just 6'1", just, okay. He's got better, better posture. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first crimes? I've, I think, you know, as a kid, um, I, you know, as I said, we, worked, we, we were working in King's Cross at the time. As I think I was eight or nine years old. The, the trains used to come through King's Cross and they used to carry all the cars. Um, so what I used to do I used to, I used to run along jump on, on them uh, I had two or three plastic bags with a couple of my mates and we would go through every single car because I think them trains were about a mile long in them days and we would take every single uh, radio out of the cars and then we you know we'd get four or five miles down the road and we'd drop the, the, the bags off and we'd jump down and walk all the way back that was my first foray into it um, I said my, my, you know we, I come from a, from a criminal family uh, my mum was a professional shoplifter what what qualified her as a professional shop? Um, because she never ever went into a shop and bought anything. You know, but, but, but she uh, but she came out with with uh, with tons of stuff, and I always come out with a big bar of chocolate. Um, 
But um, she was, she was, you know, she used to, uh, to wake me up in the night, and uh, she used to put me through windows uh, into warehouses. And um, you know, when we talk about normalising criminality, you know, if if your family are criminals and your your mum is waking up in the middle of the night to get through windows and open doors and pass all the stuff out, it becomes normal. Yeah. Did your friends in school know what you're up to? No, no. Um, you know, it's, it was a completely separate life. You know, I, I actually didn't spend much time at school. Um, you know, I, I was expelled. Um, I was very, uh, I was very troubled at school. I didn't realise at the time, but I had dyslexia. Um, so that 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 made me quite embarrassed, quite frustrated. It was, uh, it was, yeah, it was academically. I never. You know, I could never move forward. Uh, at the time, I was really embarrassed. I couldn't really actually speak to anyone about it. You know, I just felt like I'd be ridiculed for, by my peers. So, you know, so you know, so I, I just never went to school. I used to bunk off. And where my where my my uh, friends are at school, I I would get down Hamleys or down the market pickpocketing as a young kid. It was it was a uh, it was the only thing I was I could do. You know, it, you know, academically I was cra- crap. <laughs> and uh, you know, I I had a, I had an aptitude for a finding money what didn't belong to me <laughs> so were you expelled for bunking off i was expelled for bunking off i was expelled for uh, for attacking a teacher um why did you attack the teacher uh you know i i felt that he uh he belittled me uh because he, you know he, he was you know i couldn't spell certain certain words and i felt i felt affronted by the way he, he approached me so like most kids when you're embarrassed you you take out and i, and I, I struck out and he grabbed hold of me uh, i whacked him I was then taken to the headmaster's office and, you know, kicked out of school. I also got in a lot of fights because of it. You know, where where I was angry and frustrated, you know, because my, you know, I was working at night sometimes with my with my mum, and then I had to go to school. Um, I think that had, had a knock on effect because I, I couldn't concentrate at school. I was tired, um, and you know, I remember having the fights with with other other kids, and my response was always disproportionate to actually uh, what they had actually said. I think that was boiled down to my anger and frustration through through my life experience at that time. And did you get so unruly that you ended up in car? Is that why? I, I think um, for me, you know, it was inevitable. I think inevitable uh, the social workers and probation would eventually get involved with my life. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, when I was about 11, I came home from school. Or, you know, I was going to a little uh, unit then, you know, it was uh, one day a week. And... Um, I came home and mum said, like, you know, pack your gear, pack the bag here. We're going to pop down the road um, and uh, I'm going to take you to this place and, and uh, I'll pick you up in the evening. And I uh, went down there and uh, I took my bag in there and she said, I won't be long. And that was it. I was in a home. You were 11. <laughs> I was 11 years old. You know? That's um, rough, man. Yeah, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good feeling, um, but... You know, I never, I never actually comprehended it until the evening because I expected to come back, and this, this was uh, the first time I'd ever been, you know, I've been hit, hit by adults, but you know, I, I tried to walk out of there and go home, and then some, some, there was three or four guys in there, and then one of them punched me straight in the face. Adults um, did. Adults, yeah. People that were working there. People that were supposed to care for me and look after me <laughs> decided to, to knock some sentence to me by, by beating the shit out of me. So you're thinking your mum's coming? What's going through your head? Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was scared. I was confused. You know, the person that I'd, I'd done everything for, um, and and, you know, my, as a, my, you know, my dad was uh, was he left us when we before we were born, but he used to come come down, you know, every now and then to chastise us. 
but by doing what I was doing, by, by helping her, because she never, my brothers and my sisters were, never got involved in her, they didn't know. Uh, I, I, I just assumed that I had, uh, you know, I had, I, had, uh, I had her back and she would have mine. And then unfortunately, then when the person you love for the most uh, abandons you, it has a massive effect on you. It made me so angry. And what are you channeling that anger into at that age? It, you know, it came out in so many different ways. And most of it was fighting. Uh, most of it was being destructive. And, and most of it was against authority. You know, instead of blaming her, I blamed the authority. I blamed the, the social workers, probation. Um, it was, uh, I was, I was a real, you know, I was a shit, to be honest, you know, as a kid. But they were beating the crap out of you as well, constantly, or...? You know what, it came, it came to the stage where it just became normal, you know, like, you know, if, if, if they couldn't control you, in, back in them days, they thought they could, they could knock some sense into you, and unfortunately it didn't work, it just made me worse. It, in fact, I think it actually set me up for prison, you know, I think they were conditioning me for prison. I'm not going to say that by going to care, it made me, it was, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely a stepping stone for prison for me, I think they definitely set me up for that, but... You know, I don't you know? It, it could have gone either way. If 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 I never went in care, I would probably have ended up in in prison because of the lifestyle. But it definitely perpetuated uh, how I was at that particular time. The care homes traumatized the kids, and then it's like a pipeline into addiction, crime, and prison. No, yeah, yeah. You know, I think when you when you when you live that life, you know, you you, you have to have an outlet. You know, for me, it was. Um, it was criminality. I used to break into shops in the evenings. You know, I used to wake up, you know, even as a young kid, you know, 11, 11 12 years old, I used to wake up, I used to sneak out and I used to go doing that, uh, shops and everything. You know, it's crazy. And I used to go and buy bottles of vodka, bottles of rum, and I used to sit in, in, in uh, the, the, the old churchyards and just drink with, with a few friends and, and smoke. You know, I didn't, you know, smoking at 11 and 12 was... It's crazy. You know, ten number six, I think it was in them days. You know? And the relationships you formed led to your foray into armed robberies with sawn off shotguns. Yeah, that's, that's a big leap. How did what? Well, you know, I was, I was in care. Um, you know, I, I ended up in Stanford Ass. Uh, it's in Shepherd's Bush. Um, you know, the place was overcrowded. Is uh, just full of violence. I spent, I spent, a, 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 you know, just over a year, I think it was, and then they, I, they put me into a community home. Um, um, I, I, I was there a couple of years, which was great. You know, I worked on a farm. Um, unfortunately, I got a young girl pregnant there who was, who was, who was also in care. We had a, we had a young boy. Um, she got moved back to Cambridge where she lived. I got moved back to London because I couldn't go back with my family. They they, they put me in a shared flat with two other guys who who um, we know they were quite hard on criminals. I think for compared to me, you know, um, so they were doing armed robberies. And and uh, after a, a few weeks, they uh, they asked me if I'd like to join them. And what did you say? Yeah, of course. You know, I jumped at a chance. I, I was back in London. I didn't have, a, have anyone now. I didn't have no money. I think I was I was getting like twenty three quid a week. Uh, and all of a sudden, I had this opportunity to walk into somewhere, and and and, t- and take a load of money. And you know, I, I jumped at a chance. I'm not going to lie. You know, it was. It was uh, well, you're only a kid, weren't you? Yeah. You've been brutalised. Yeah. Um, how old were you when you did the first armed robbery? I think I was uh, about, I think I was 17 and I was 17 years old. So how does that feel to be helpless and hopeless and abandoned and then all of a sudden you're holding a sawn-off shotgun? Um, do you know, you know, I always hear a lot about power and everything else, but I never ever, as a kid, I never, it never jumped at me like that. 
uh, for me, it was just a means to an end. I never had no money, so you know, it was, it was, I saw these guys with lots of money, um, and you know, it was an opportunity. I, I, you know, I, I couldn't get a normal job because one, I, I, I had dyslexia, and one, I, I thought I was stupid. And, and uh, you know, I saw these guys with all the trappings of the nice clothes going out every night, and I, and I jumped it. It was, uh, it was an easy, it was an easy decision. It wasn't hard. What kind of money were you pulling? Yeah, I was only pulling about three or four thousand pound every other day. Um, Which was know, a lot back then. Oh, it's massive. You know, you could buy a car for five hundred quid back in them days. Um, and even though it was probably a Vauxhall Viva, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Wasn't it the fastest car? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, you know, I, I can remember going and doing my first job. I think I got about six, six, seven thousand quid out of the post office. Um, I can remember going in there, and I, you know, I'd, I'd been watching this post office for a little while, and I saw the guy because you know most people were going in the front doors, and you know, it was, he was hit and miss. Uh, but I saw this guy. He came to open the open the post office in the morning. He drove around the back. He um, emptied his car, and he left the back door open, and then came back out of his car and then parked it across the road. So I just I just walked in there, and then uh, when he came in, you know, I put a shotgun in his face and uh, told him to get on the floor, uh, tied him up, uh, and then I I took the keys to the safe off him because it was on a time lock. Pulled, uh, pulled uh, the, 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 there's, a, there's a cup on the front of the safe on the time lock. Pulled it off, put a key in, uh, and took all the money out, everything that was in there, and looked at the front. There was about 15, 15 16 people outside, all waiting for their gyros or, or to cash them, and they was all banging on the window. And I just, I just, I just walked out, walked out the back door, and I was on my way. That sounds very smooth. Sure. Were those situations that went wrong? Do you know what is you know for me you know doing armed robbers was really easy you know because you know you it was you know you're walking into a place um, you had you had a, you had the gun and you had three or four minutes to do it and get away and the chances of the old bill coming past were pretty slim so you know I didn't really see it as, as uh, anything other than really easy. But you did get busted and end up in young offenders. Oh yeah. How did the bus come about? Um, you know we was doing we was doing you know quite a few robberies every week. And, and it got to the stage where, where eventually we would get nicked. Um, I can remember I'd, I'd rented out a flat in Hampstead um, and um, I was enjoying my life. And I came home uh, one evening about six o'clock and, uh, I, you know, I just, I just felt this. I felt something and I opened the door. Next thing, the whole place just exploded with old Bill. Uh, you know, they all had revolvers. I got smashed across the head, smashed in the face. My, my legs went, kicked in the bollocks, and I was spread eagle on the floor, and then someone was cuffing me. And I think that was the first time I actually, I actually took it seriously. I actually realised it wasn't a game. You know, up until that moment, I, 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 just, I just looked upon it as a means to an end, or, or the world owed me a living. You know, they put me in the homes... They'd beaten me, so I just assumed I was taking back what was rightfully mine. You know, I, I, um, you know, up until then I thought I was special. Um, I thought I was untouchable. Uh, I lived above the laws that most people live their lives by. Um, but unfortunately, uh, that day was was uh, was an eye opener for me, and and the start of my my criminal career as as a hardened criminal. Because up until then, you know, even though we was doing armed robberies, I didn't really class myself as a real hardened criminal. You know, but unfortunately, when I when I went to Aylesbury, young offenders, it was like a battleground. You know, it was a battleground of fighting. What was your first day like in the? Do you know what? Um, you know, I remember having a fight on the hot plate the first minute we came in there. You know, first minute you came in. Yeah, you know, we came in. There was a few guys from from a different area. 
there were four of us, and and then one of them said something, and I end up with it. I had a tray at the time. We had metal trays in there, so I end up whacking this guy with all the tray. He then threw a punch. We all started laying into each other, you know. And then the next thing, I was in the block. But yeah, it was it was it was it was an old Victorian uh, prison. It was cold. It was uh, it was it was brutal. You know, the screws were 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 bad. You know, and I can remember getting you know going down the block, and I got weighed in like you wouldn't believe. You know, this was like don't fucking come to my prison, and 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 think you can just do this, you little shit. And it was whack whack whack, and five or six of them on me. You know, I think my only saving grace there was I actually pulled myself under the bed. So I can always remember this big Irish screw over the white shirt, because all of them had blue shirts, and there was a white, he come flying in at me, and he went and kicked me, and I rolled under the bed, and he whacked his shin. And, and he went, he went Garrity, and next thing on, he was he was trying to fucking whack the life out of me, but I just kept like that. And he gave up, he, he went, and he's, you know, they sort of looked and said, we'll be back. And I, and I, I can remember, you know, rolling over after he left, and thought, fucking hell. You know, this is. You know, I was, I was terrified. <laughs> I mean, there was a part of me that that that, that uh, wanted to go home <laughs> uh, and wanted to be back uh, somewhere safe. But you know, it was cold. Uh, the, the, you know, the bed was nailed down to the floor. It never had a mattress. It was just slats. Um, you know, and there was a piss pot in the corner and a, and a jug of water. And I thought, fucking hell, what the fuck? What has my life turned out like? You know, and not here I was. Um, you know, I think I was about eighteen then. How long was your sentence? Um, I got four years. Which Did is, you have to serve two? I served two, yeah. What was the worst thing that happened to you over those two years? Um, I, I think it was really violence. I think, you know, it wasn't really anything happened to me. You know, I, I took a few items down the block, you know, from the screw, but that was part of the calls. I can live with that. Yeah, ain't no drama. Um, you know, I can, remember, I can remember seeing a guy, you know, two, you know, I was with some friends. Um, this guy came came on the, on the scene. He was a big, big black guy. And... My mate was uh, was a black guy as well, and he he pulled out a chiv and he just cut him, but he, he cut him down the face and then cut him down the, the the front as well. And all I see was the flap go over like that, and he just started screaming. But he was such a big guy, and his his shirt was open and there was claret everywhere, and he was running up the the landing. And I see his brother came, so we, I weighed him in, and and then then fucking all hell broke loose, and my mate ended up stabbing someone, and then we had the old bill coming from outside. Uh, luckily, I never stabbed anyone. Uh, my mate got an extra couple of years for stabbing, and uh, and then I, that was it. Really, I was I, uh, I sort of calmed down a bit after that. It sort, it sort of settled the whole place. You know, I had lots of lots of my friends from Camden Town there came in there. So we, you know, a few of my mates were doing life, and they were young kids. So you know, I knew them from outside. So you know, I think it was about fifteen of us in there. We held our own, and I think after that, we never really got any trouble. You know, it was just it was an easy bit of bird, so to speak. How easy was it to get a knife in there? Oh, you know, it's easy. You just you get a toothbrush, uh, and you just sharpen it up, or you get your razor blade, you burn it, and you put it on, you wrap it, and you got you can cut someone. You know, it's not it's not hard. You can use a tray. You cut a tray up. Uh, you put a, you make it into a shank. You hide it. You hide. We used to have three or four of them stashed around everywhere. So you know, because if we were going to the library or we were going somewhere, we never we couldn't carry a knife, but we knew strategically where they was if we needed one. You know, in, in the old Victorian uh, uh, prisons, you could put them on the, you could put them up high. You could put them on the. They used to have all the metal girders going around, so you can. You had we had them in different places. But yeah, it was it was a scary place. It was frightening all the time, but it was just the way of life. It was normal. You started to read in there. Yeah, yeah. You know what? For the first time in my life, I, I was bored. You know, you know, uh, dealing with boredom is the uh, is the number one thing when you go to prison, as you, as you probably know. Uh, so for me, it was um, it was an opportunity for me to actually go to the library, 
and escape, you know, escape from prison. You know, when you're a young kid, you know, you're banged up with no television, no radio. Um, you know, they, they used to have cowboy books or the, or the Bible back in them days. Uh, so to go into a library and actually get some real meaningful books, uh, you know, just from, you know, from just, you know, from escapism, you know, I read Shogun, The Prodigal Daughter, you know, all these, all these, all these books I'd never actually experienced before. And I could escape for a book for the whole night. It was, it was amazing. You know, and that was that was where my love for, for reading actually started from. From prison. Wow, that's really interesting because most lads at that age aren't interested in reading, are they? I wasn't. For many know, years later, I think most of them are interested in just pulling one out every night and going to kip. <laughs> you know? uh, but you know, you know, after you've after you've done that and you've experienced all that, you know, yeah. you, you you have to you have to start reading. You know, most of the guys I know. Most of the the criminals I met throughout my period in prison were dyslexic or they had learning difficulties. Uh, so, you know, for me it was a, it was a massive eye opener uh, through that period uh, because we was all expelled from school. We was all we always suffered dyslexia, and the only other option available to us was criminality. You know, so yeah, you know, but I, I, but these guys were really intelligent. I met some really really great artists, really good poets, uh, good painters. You know, and and the conversations they had were variable. You know, and, you know, I'm, it always surprised me why we all ended up in prison. You know, if we, you know, because they were so intelligent. You know, if they if they applied the aptitude to a normal job, if we were given a chance, you know, we 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 would have excelled. But unfortunately, you know, we in England or well, most countries base everything on academia. They don't they don't base it on the fact that you're a human being or you've got good life skills that may fit certain jobs. You're just, if you ain't got a degree, you ain't got your, you ain't got your own levels or whatever, you ain't worth the monkeys. Yeah. All right, so did you decide then that you were going to reform or did you have a, a new plan? Do you know, I came out of prison and I'd met a few people in there and I just, and up until that time, you know, when I was in and my dad got done for, for a murder and uh, so for me, you know, going on in the armed robberies now was, was taboo. I'm not going to do any more armed robberies. Um, but I met a few people, and I met an older guy in there, and he was on the jump-ups. So he'd done the jump-ups. Which means what? Well, what we do, we used to f- you follow lorries around or vans and everything, and as soon as they pull up, park up, we'd empty them off. We'd follow them around London. A sign-up is basically where you see a guy who's lost. You are, say, where are you going, mate? You'll get his clipboard off him and say, right, oh, I know what it is. You know, you'll send him down the road. And then you'll go to the place where he should deliver. So as soon as he pulls up, we'll be there. And, and then we go, what time do you call this? And he go, I've got, you know, I'm late. I got, I got, I got lost. Some, some arsehole sent me the wrong way. And uh, we say, well, we're going for dinner now, mate. <laughs> and he go, please, I need to get this done because I've got to go to my next job. So we say, right, listen, Steve, Pete, unload him now on the floor. And then, and then what I do, I'd sign him off. <laughs> so he would, he would dump everything on the floor. We'd sign him up, he'd disappear, and we'd pull up in their van, we'd load it all up. It was, it was a really good, it was a good job. I'd done it for a, for a, for a few years. It was pretty, you know, it was, it was I like the variation in it because you, every day was different. What about drivers who slept on the job? You know, we just cut the sides. <laughs> we cut the sides and we emptied them out, you know, and people got to sleep. You know, the good thing about them lorries back in them days is that they were separate. You know, you could, you could make a fair bit of noise and no one would come out. But you were getting greedy. I'm very greedy, you know. You know, yeah. We just we went we went too far. You know, we were nicking, you know, we were nicking cigarette lorries, we were nicking drink lorries, and it came to the time where, you know, where I just had to get out. You know, we had a, we had a big shout up with the old Bill. A friend of mine got nicked, so I decided that uh, it must be a different different line of work for me. And and at that time, there was a lot of puff coming to England then, 
so I decided to go to, uh, to Spain. So the heat was on, and the cops were they lo- actively looking for you? Uh, well, no, they they'd, they'd arrested my friend. Uh, they'd gone round to, to somewhere where I was living at the time, and they went to the wrong ass. And then the, 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 they phoned me and said, "Listen, the old bill just been round here." And so I, I I jumped on a plane. I got my passport, jumped on a plane, um, and then I uh, I'm just, just in, inventing myself as a as, an, as a drug runner. You know, I started buying puff. Up in Marbella, um, with a few guys, and then we were packing it and we were running it up. You know, we were. It was great. It was a, it was a brand new life. It was nice and warm out there, which was which was great. Um, you know, it was Sangrela every night. You know, we were we were in the, in the boozers. In <laughs> it was just great. The life was fantastic, and all we had to do for that was was go and buy three or four hundred key every every other week. Um, vacuum seal it or or use the old sealers, depending on which one we we had at the time. And then run it up to Valencia, and and uh, meet our, our people up there, and then it would it would it would be delivered, not back to England because I would never do that, uh, but it would be delivered in, you know to Europe or whatever. And you had a decoy car system that would speed off. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, for us, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a haddock operation. You know, it was it was well planned. You know, we. If we was going to Valencia, we would get a car a few days before, so it had the number plates, so we would bring that car back. We would then get a, a Malaga, one with Malaga plates in the front, and then we had a, an English uh, driver behind us. So back in them days, they used to have rolling roll blocks. And so what happens then if you're driving along? We used to, we used to you know, one person would go five or six kilometres in front, the other guy would stay behind me. And normally, if there was a roadblock, he would then radio uh, or phone or something. So there's a roadblock pull over. Uh, if we missed that opportunity and we missed the turn off, and we had to go straight through. Uh, normally, the guy behind me with the English, I'd phone him and say, "Right, just, just, just go for it," and he would then fly past me. English number plates. The old bill would assume he was a drug dealer, and they would go after him. I would then go, go, sliply go past, and I would pull off, and I'd wait till it all calms down. We'd radio each other, and then we'd, we'd well, finish the job. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was quite, it was quite hairy. It was, it was quite exciting. Um, it was also, you know, it was. You know, when you work hard, you play hard. So, you know, at that time I was drinking a lot. You know, I was partying every night. Um, but, you know, it was, just, it was just the same thing every week. You know, nothing. I was not achieving anything apart from earning loads of money. Um, but my, my, my kids were back in England. Uh, my ex-girlfriend was back in England. So it was a trade-off. You know, I was earning loads of money, sending it back. But at the same time, I was leading a double life, which, I, I you know, you know reflection that was it was... It was it wasn't a very good one, you know, because I was out with different women every night drinking. Um, and what started off as something really good uh, to feed my kids and look after my girlfriend and give her a completely different life turned into something really shit, you know. So, but that's the, that was the cost of being a criminal. There was a bigger cost for a friend of yours back then who fell asleep behind the wheel. Yeah, you know, he's, he was where well, we, we used to have races back, you know, when with the three of us, we used to try and race back and see who was the first one back. And uh, I can remember we got, I got back and he wasn't there, so I went home. You know, I never thought nothing of it. And then my mate phoned me, you know, the next day and said, "Like, do you know that his name just he fucking went off a cliff the other night?" And I, and I was shocked. It's hard when you lose a friend. Did that make you rethink that you might want to change your ways, losing a friend? I, you know what? I don't. I, I think the reason I got into criminality and, and the reason I, I, I could, was able to do the things I, I didn't really have any empathy. You know, I never, I got, I never got in touch with that side of me. So when he when he died, I was, I felt away. I felt, 
I felt a loss, but you know what? It was, it was okay. What should we do now? You know, so I, I just, you know, I just jumped on a, I jumped on a plane back to England, and I jumped on another plane and went to Amsterdam. What was your plan for Holland? Uh, I got, I got involved with uh, um, some uh, ex-military guys from Yugoslavia and uh, Serbians. I, I knew at that time. I knew them in Spain. Um, and for us, we were, we we concentrated on on uh, on their side for sending stuff back to them, you know, and and then uh, we got involved with the ease, you know, the ecstasy. Um, and at that time, ecstasy was just taking off. It was like you know, twenty five quid a tab, you know, and we were buying them for like a pound, and it was and it was like it was it was a no brainer. Um, you know, you we you know you I'd walk into a place and there'd be like you know there'd be bucket loads of uh, ease, and we'd just be what year was up. that? Um, I think that was the early nineties. Yeah, before I think it was. Yeah, when I was over there, and that was a, that was a real. Yeah, you know, Amsterdam for me was like a it was like a different world. You know, you know, going to Amsterdam in the red light district uh, was like a, I was like a kid in a candy shop for the first few months, and then I moved into Utrecht. You know, I got a little place out there, I had a speedboat, really nice ass. Um, and it was you know I was going to restaurants every night, and and all I was doing was selling eaves. You know, just transporting them all around Europe. It was great, I, I, you know, or we were, you know, I loved it. Um, we also got in, in, involved in, in uh, other, other stuff, coke and everything else. Um, I was actually I was actually driving a load of stuff down to, I think, down to France at the time. And my two guys I was working with, so, you know, I won't give his name, sorry. Um, he got shot and got killed. He got shot in the nut. What, um, for what reason? Well, at that time, you had a lot of Russians, Serbians and everyone coming over. Um, life started to become very cheap. You know, um, it was actually you know, if, you know, if you think these guys were coming from uh, from countries that you know were very poor, you know, and you could buy a house for, for twenty or thirty grand, you know, you could set yourself up a two key for uh, for ten or fifteen years. So you know, you then had the guys that were working over there who didn't think didn't think twice about going on a meet with with a couple hundred thousand quid, you know, to go and buy you know five or ten kilos of what you know whatever. So when, and when they got there. You know, instead of picking up gear, they were picking up one in the end, in the end. That's what happened to my pal. Uh, my other pal at the time got shot in the back, and he, he was a cripple. Um, and that was that was that was that was you know, you know. Again, I I I, I like these guys. I went out of them every night, and I, 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 I they were like my brothers. But you know, what, once, what were the circumstances of him getting shot? They went on the meet, and they were robbed. You know, they tried to get robbed. They 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 fought back, and 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 and. It, it all ended really badly for him, you know. Keep your day jobs, folks. Don't get gangsteritis. No, you know it's, it's you know it's, it's it's the life, you know. You know it's, it comes with. I think people have got the perception of of, of of all the glamour and everything else, but you know there's 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 so many people out there that are, um, that are ruthless, you know, and more so now than any time in the history of uh, drugs. Because it gets worse every yeah. year. Drug legal yeah. market gets bigger. Yeah. Got the got the. Uh, I just had a story. I interviewed a guy recently. Some people were dealing, and the Albanians showed up and took their eyeballs out. Well, the, Al- the Albanians now is you know basically running. They're running Amsterdam. They run all the all the everything over there. Yeah. You know, uh, if, if the Russians were were pretty you know ruthless when they was in Spain when we was over there, uh, and the Albanians now are even even worse. Yeah. You know. So, you know, I was, I was actually I was actually glad to get out of there. I had a little sabbatical in uh, in Cambodia after that. Uh, I went over there. I was actually offered a job over there to pack some gear. I went to uh, Cambodia. Uh, because all the gear they were sending out there was was all underweight, 
uh, they weren't putting the right, you know, you used to put air balls in so you, you keep it fresh. Um, so what, what is it they say now? Is it heroin? No, it was, it was a weed. It was oh, Thai weed? weed and everything okay. else. So I went to, I went to Thailand. Uh, they, they call it a godan. It's a whereas. And I spent, I spent seven weeks there teaching these guys how to vacuum seal, but actually do it the right weight because they were putting, you know, 900, 600s and everything else. And, you know, when you're buying gear, you know, you want to you want to get a kilo of gear. You need you need a kilo of gear. You know, that's what you pay for. You don't want to start taking five percent off this, ten percent off off a big parcel. So, they asked me if I could go over there and show them. And I spent seven seven weeks over there. And I, I, I had a ball. I, you know, I went to uh, yeah, I went to some really good places. I learned how to meditate. <laughs> uh, I went to a few monasteries, and I, I I had a really great time. Yeah, what's uh, the food like out there? Food was lovely. Uh, the poverty was insane. Is it? Um, you know, I I can remember. You know, I remember going past people and, and they they were crawling along the floors and they got all their their their, their you know knees were out of shape. Uh, there was blood everywhere and people were just walking past and they'd be sitting in McDonald's and you think God, you know, in Thailand that was the worst for me. I was in you know when I was in Papang or Papang there, and you know, I can remember just eating eating in the McDonald's there because it was the only place that had air conditioning. And looking out and you see all these young girls and kids and, that, and they had all they used to tie their feet up you know when they were young so they. So he was disabled. So because people, they revere people with disability and they help them, you know, so for some reason. And and that that was that the kids were born into that and they were they were crippled by their parents so they could go and earn money. It was crazy. <sighs> and to see it was quite an eye opener. It sort of it sort of puts a few things into perspective, you know. Um, I was glad to get out of there. To be honest, you know, and it wasn't really my my thing. It was quite seedy, quite quite brutal. Um, but you know, I met some really nice people over there, like everywhere. But they was all villains, um, and with with that comes, you know, they're ruthless. You know, they don't give a monkey's about human life or anybody. Um, so I decided to come back, and I end up in France. <laughs> what, is, what was your plan though? Um, my plan was just to, just to chill out for a little while, you know, yeah. and, and just take it easy. And then I got in, in touch with a few friends of mine. We then rented out a warehouse, and then I was uh, doing doing loads of cigarettes. You know, just from Luxembourg, Germany, and all that, and uh, I, I spent a long time doing that. And then, uh, you know, we, I came back to England for, for, uh, to see some people, and then I end up going to uh, to the farm where we used to, because we used to send the gear back, and there's a farm. And as I went down there, I can remember I used to have a jeep as well when I was in England, so my mates would pick it up for me and bring it over to me, or bring it when I came back. My mate dropped the jeep off for me, and he couldn't drive. I think it was a three and a half tonner. I think it was big loot and lorry. I think it was at the time. He couldn't. He couldn't drive it. So I said, "I'll oh, fuck. I'll drive it." So, so I think the old bill were on me then. They was on my case because they knew that I was going to that that, that place, um, but I didn't know at the time. So I jumped in the van, in the, in the, the loot and lorry van. It was, and he drove off in my jeep. So at the time I caught up with him, I, I was about I don't know about six or seven hundred yards at the road. I see him pull into into the uh, into the farm, and then all of a sudden I see the, a, a fucking Land Rover come flying out of nowhere, smash through the other fence. Uh, there was Land Rover, another Land Rover come out of where they were because the lorry was parked inside, and um, the old Bill come from everywhere. There was that they had all guns and everything else, and I think they thought it was cocaine, but it was only cigarettes. And I think and all I saw was my mate there and a few of them, and they was all fucking on the floor. And I just drove off. I thought, fuck me, I'm pretty lucky. I, I, I disappeared, you know. Um, and then I, you know, 
because my car was there, I had to phone the old bill up. Um, uh, well, I, I phoned customs and excise and said, like, you know, I've, just, I've been away for a little while. I just come back to England. I can't find my car. And they said, we want to have a word with you, you know. <laughs> so I said, well, what for? And they said, uh, you know, they raided my ass, my girlfriend's ass, who I was seeing. Um, um, yeah, it was a moment. So, but the funny thing was, uh, you know, in customers and excise, uh, they, they do things really different from uh, from anything else. They actually give you all the questions before they actually come and see you. So... So I answered all the questions. I, I looked at all the questions and I answered the ones I want. I spent, you know, a few months going back and forth to court and I ended up getting not guilty. They never had no, no evidence, no fingerprints, no evidence. And I got off on a technicality. And I think because it wasn't cocaine and it wasn't guns, uh, they were pretty pretty relieved. So they, they gave my, one of my pals nine months, no, 12 months in prison. Um, and he was okay with that. It wasn't, it wasn't a drama, you know. So I thought at this time I got to really just knuckle down. I met... You know, I was with a girl then, uh, her name was uh, Sunshine. Um, her sister was called Sadie Frost. Um, she was married to Jude Law. Um, she had a couple of kids by Gary Kemp. So for me, I just sort of, I came back and I thought, I've got to go under the radar. And at that time, I was actually thought I was okay. And then she phoned me one day and she said, there's a guy outside and he's, uh, he's, he's, he's cleaning, no, he's painting the lights outside on the, on the, on the, on the street. And uh, I said, well, what, why the fuck are you phoning me for? She said, because he ain't got a paintbrush in his hand. I said, what do you mean? She said, he's pretending to paint. And then so I said, because unfortunately he must have been on sync. <laughs> so I said, I said, because we used to have cameras all around the ass. So I went, I went back and looked on the camera and what it was, it was the old, the old Bill. Of course. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were pretending to paint. They went on and they were cherry pickers and they, they put a, a camera right outside my, on my ass. You know, and when I looked on the other cameras, they, they were creeping around in the mornings and that, but they never realised that I had, we had bird boxes everywhere, but instead of putting feed in, we put cameras in them and we could see everything that was going on. So for me, it was just like, I just shut, I shut down everything. I thought, fuck it, I ain't doing nothing else. Uh, I knew they only had the money for a, for a couple of weeks, obo on me. And, and I decided to, uh, to sort of change my life a little bit. So I was, I was out with Kate Moss every night. You were out with Kate Moss every night. Yeah, was you that? Know, it was nice. You know, we you know we used to go drinking with Sadie, Sadie and all that because Sunshine's a sister, and uh, it was nice. We go ice skating, we go to you know have something to eat. It was really, it was really a nice. You know, were those guys staying sober? <laughs> I mean, <that's, laughs> don't get yourself in trouble. No, I don't want to get myself in trouble. <laughs> uh, you know what? It, you know, it's, I think at that time because um, I think Sadie was having a lot of trouble with uh, no matter where she went, uh, went the cameras were there. Mm. And this was a time when when the news of the world was bugging her phone, so you know there was, there was a lot of paranoia, and I, th- I think it was definitely because of that. Nothing else, mm. <laughs> um, I, you know. I never, I never ever saw anyone take any drugs. Put it that way, <laughs> no alleged drug taking, but the police are on your case again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, you can only live so so. Uh, you can only have a few months off in the, in the drug game. You know what I mean? You don't get you don't get holiday pay. You know, so so I had to go. You know, I had to go back. I had a lifestyle to maintain. I had I had, I had two houses. You know, I bought a nice house in Camden Town. Uh, we bought an house uh, up in Endon. Uh, it was about half, one and a half million that was. And 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 I know I, I had to go back to work. So I knew some people. I knew some Colombians that I knew. knew some I like and, that line. And, uh, I knew some Colombians. And the Colombians at that time were bringing in. You know, they were coming in every week on with, with gear, you know. Coke. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I, I had a link, you know, and uh, that link uh, supplied me with 10 or 15 bits every single day. So what, what year was this then with the Coke? 
Oh, this um, this was about was it was it? You know, I remember nine eleven. I remember when the tower blocks, 9 Yes, 2001, right. was that? Yeah, 2001. So this was about 2000 it was, yeah? Okay. Was just, just you know, a year before it, so 2000-ish. 2000, 2000, yeah, 2000. So 2000, 10 years yeah. after Escobar then. Yeah. So, yeah, I can always remember 9-11. I'll come to that in a second. Uh, so I was working with them and everything was going really well. We was doing bundles, you know, bundles and bundles. We was earning a good living. I had a, I had a pretty fruitful life. You know, my kids were being looked after. I gave them money. I split up with my girlfriend at that time in that period, and and I was living living with my new girlfriend, and um, you know, it just seemed to go so well. I had a few guys working for me, dropping off gear, and and it couldn't get any better. You know, my life was was fantastic. I had I had three or four Weimaraners in the back garden. You know, we were going you know we were going to Spain on holiday. We were going everywhere. We were just doing nice things, and then nine eleven hit. You know, when the tower blocks went up. Um, I always remember because uh, my mate had, uh, had ordered twelve kilo coke, and um, and my oven powder had ordered some. Someone else had ordered some, and then I was I just watched it unfold on the telly. It was, it was a mad moment, you know. And uh, I can remember, you know, just stopping everything that day, and um, we watched it. And in the morning, uh, my mates were supposed to come around and drop the gear off and do what they were supposed to do, and then they all phoned in and said they'd been watching this all night and. Uh, they was all pissed, you know. They was all they was all up in the air. So, you know, I I, I cancelled everyone, but one guy in particular that you know he's a real good friend. You know, he 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 travelled down. He said, "I need this fuck. I need the gear tell, please. You got to help me." So, you know, I, I said, "Oh, I'll I'll, I'll I'll drop it off myself." So I went and picked it up with my slaughter, and um, I went down there. And luckily, you know, if I'd have had the twelve key, I'd have been fucked. But I, I took two. Uh, I gave it to him, and um, he went. He went, and uh, he went into a tower block to do something. I, he was supposed to, to get rid of it, and he came back with it. Um, he came back with it. He came back with it, and just as he came out the door, you know, the, the whole fucking car that I was in exploded with old Bill. There was there was two traffic wardens <laughs> dressed as old Bill, or two two old Bill dressed as traffic wardens. They came through the sides. I, you know, I was getting whacked everywhere. They, they came through every every every. You know, I had a Mercedes, and we had a Mercedes there. All the doors came through. I, I pulled out the car. The windows were going in, and I thought, "What the fuck has happened here?" You know, and you know, I saw him in the. I saw him, and I thought, "Fucking hell!" You know, why the fuck have you walked out of that door? You know, and it was at that moment I, I realised that you know, I, it was it was ended. My 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 life was, was fucking in ruins. You know, everything I'd supposed to be achieved was now going to go down the pan. Snakes and ladders. Yeah. So you know. Um, you know, so I was arrested. I spent you know, a few days in a, in a, in a, you know, being questioned and uh, no, no comment. And then, uh, you know, I got done for, uh, for, um, um, not only concerned in the drugs, uh, selling all that bollocks here. And they gave me six years. How much were you getting your kilos for? Uh, I think at that time we were getting them for 23, between 23, 25, 26, depending on what, what groups were coming in. They were going at about 30, 32, 33, 34s then. So you know the markup was massive because the people bringing them in didn't have a clue. You know they had they had uh, they had it they had the stuff, but we had the outlay. Yeah, or the outlet. Sorry, and uh, it was a real good it was a real good partnership for a few years. You know it was it was, fuck, it was so good it was unbelievable. But you know like anything you deal in shit and you deal in misery and you got to pay the piper. You know and and that day uh, that day was probably one of the worst for me because you know. You know, I was just about to move to Spain and retire. You know, I was going to sell the asses. We, we'd arranged, we'd been over there looking at a gaff. 
and I and I was going to rent that one. You know, I'd loads, I'd, I'd I'd quite a few quid at that time, and I realised that 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 moment, everything I had is going to go tomorrow. It's going to go because it's going to get confiscated, and it did. You know, uh, you know, it, it all it all went. The money, and I was just I was just so angry. I was fucking. I was I was so angry. It's unbelievable. And you got six years on it. Yeah, six years for being a prat. You know, if we're actually going to pick in some gear up and actually do him, I'd make a fuck for a favour. Did he know? Nah. You know what? It's one of those things. It's mm. just, you know what? It's, you know, it's just the nature of the game. It wasn't a setup. I, I don't know. I think it might have been. But you know mm. what? It is what it is. You know, um, eventually, eventually, uh, you know, your day comes. You know, my yeah. day was that day. I can remember being, I can remember the, the night before, I was at Sadie Frost's, no, I was at Sadie Frost's house. I had Kate Moss on my knee. <laughs> Jude Roll was in the kitchen and we was all having a glass of wine we was all messing about and uh, you know and I think the house was worth about 12 million quid and uh, you know and I thought I was I was, I was, I was fucking Don Colleone you know <laughs> um, and, and all I'm doing the next, the next day I'm, I'm you know I'm sitting in Pentonville and uh, you know I'm in an empty cell and I've got you know Leroy was here Tony was here I'm fucking all written on, the, on you know in cigarette you know they used to get the lighters and burn everything on and you know it's a, it's a you know cockroach infested place uh, Pentonville I don't know if you know it and rats, mice everything in there and I just thought what the fuck am I doing here you know it was like deja vu you know I've been there done it before so it was nothing new to me but you know I just the thought of having to do whatever time I had to do was a, was a nightmare did you get along with everybody or did people try and test you you know I got along with everybody you know what I've, we, I come from a pretty good area and you know what I can make one phone call outside. I could have phone cards sent in. I could have money there. I could have a phone. It ain't no drama. So you know, my 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 life in prison was just the same as it was at. You know, I even I even was getting bottles of Cavorcio over, over the fucking wall. You know, and having a drink. I can remember meeting a psychologist in there, and, and she actually said, have, "Have you been drinking?" I said, "How the, how the fuck am I going to get drinking it?" And I, was, I think it was about half past eight in the morning. But uh, it wasn't nothing had changed. The only thing was it was my surroundings. You know, we never got no trouble, you know, when you're younger and young offenders, you know what, it's got to be the worst place in the world because everyone's trying to prove themselves. You know, testosterone, testosterone levels are up, you know, different areas are trying to fight each other. When you get to, to man's prison or men's prisons, they sort of act a little bit different. You know, they, you know, it's, it's about it's about mutual respect. It's about having decent conversations. It's about getting through your bird and getting to the other end. You know, it's not about fighting. It's not about all that crap. It does go on. You know, the young ones, it's more gladiator school, isn't it? Yeah, because all trying to prove itself. On, you know, the older ones, when it goes down, it's less. It goes down less, but it's more serious, isn't it? If you, if you know, what, you know, you know, when it goes down with the older lot, it's uh, you know, you're you're in trouble. Yeah, you know, you know, I've I've, I've seen guys, you know, I've seen guys, uh, I've seen guys get jugged with oil. Uh, I've seen guys get juggled with uh, sugar and and, uh, and water. What what did that? Um, what happened to the person who had that happened to? Oh, it's terrible. You know what? It's, I think the most thing for me is the screams. They scream the place down. You know, I've, I don't know if you've ever got a little bit of oil on your hand when you're cooking. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you know, if if it drips on you and you can't get it off, so when you get a jug of hot water over you with with sugar in it, it melts on your skin and you know it peels all your hair off and everything. I, I see, I've seen that a few times in prison, and I, and it wasn't the fact that that was going to happen. It was the fact that the screams. You know, it was it was that piercing scream of of like. And, but there's nothing you can do <laughs> you can't put it out it's not a fire it just melts into you and you know what I see them dragged off screaming crying their eyes out and unconscious most of them because of the pain they just pop out of the game 
Um, I've seen guys. Uh, Why were they targeted? You know, you know, most of the stuff that happens in prison is, is drug related. So if you know, if you get, if you get, if you get into, if you get into debt, you got a drug problem. You're liable to be attacked. You're liable to have retribution uh, given out to you. If you're associated with drugs and you're selling drugs and another team want to take over that, you're going to get retribution. You're going to get cut. Um, you know, if you live the life, you attract the shit that's going to come with it. So, you know, if my philosophy is when I go in prison, I don't, I don't do nothing. I don't take no drugs. I don't do nothing. I don't get involved. I have my own circle of friends around me, and that's it. But, you know, it's, it's prevalent in there because... Because it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a an underbelly inside prison that's parasitic, you know. So you you have people with drug problems and everyone coming in, they're 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 um they're the meal ticket because they 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 give them something. It's double bar- bubble. They then then pays for their gear and it's like a vicious circle of of it's like a, it's a cesspit sometimes, you know. So what prison survival advice would you give to a young person who was going in? Um, I'd give him this book. I'd give him, I'd give him this new book I just wrote. Uh, <laughs> Let's have a look. It's... All of Terry's links are in the description box below this video. We've got HMP, Help Me Prepare, An Inmate's Guide to Prison, Christopher Alston and Terry Ellis. We've also, we've also got a contribution from uh, from uh, Joe Chapman, who's got 44 years experience. He's actually a, an, a, a prison officer. Uh, he's contrib- contributing to it as well. Um, basically, it's about information. It's it's about you know when uh, the moment you get a sentence, it tells you everything what's going to come. There's antidotes, there's stories, uh, there's contact details if you need help. So it's it's a, it's a it's a worthwhile book. It's not just one of these books that are just thrown together for for the sake of actually just earning money. We don't earn no money off this. It's actually a book that's gonna it's gonna teach people that have never been in prison, but it's also gonna it's also gonna, so gonna educate the families. The reason I wrote it, or the reason we wrote it, was because when we wrote the other books, I got so many people asked me what is prison like, and so we, I sat down. We we spent a couple of months writing it. It's actually uh, it's actually quite an enjoyable book to be honest. Congratulations on writing yeah. all those books. We're, mm. we're gonna get to that at the end. All right, so you get out again, and now you just take things to the next level. You know. I think for me, I was, I was, as I said, I was really angry. I was, I was, I was, I lost my house. I lost my girlfriend. I lost everything. I walked out of prison with nothing, you know, apart from my, a few friends that I could rely on. So while I was in prison, uh, you know, we all go through the same. We get our asses confiscated. We get our money stopped, and we get everything taken off us. And then we get angry. We get resentful, and we think the world owes us a living again. And and that's what I did. I festered on it. I festered on it for a few years. And and then I, just, I I thought, you know what? When I get, out, I'm just going to go back and get it. And the people that I resented the most was the Forry, and the people I hated the most was the old Bill. So I decided to get a little team together, and we would be a fast response robbery squad, and we would have all the, the uniforms, the caps, the radios, the cars, and we even took old station dogs with us. And and we started doing, uh, we started doing computer gaffs, we started doing everything. And was that running smoothly? I was like, it was a breeze. You know what, um, yeah, you know what it's like taking candy of a baby. For, again, it was so easy because uh, we had police uniforms and we'd pull up and we'd, you know, I remember we'd done Verizon um, in the King's Cross. It's one of the biggest IT uh, uh, data centres in Europe, you know, and it's, it's in England. And um, they boasted on their website 24-hour security, you know, they had eight or ten security guards there, you know, you know, hand scanners, door, door press, stuff, everything. They had the works. And you know what? We just we just had to go and do it, you know. There was there was 
uh, three police stations down now. Everyone that I knew had had a look at it and the other teams, and they said it was too high risk because if you get caught in now, there's no way out of there. There's um, there's a there's a canal behind it. You know what? And if it goes off, you ain't gonna get out of there. So we looked at it, and I've, I just I spent a few days uh, looking at it in the back of a, a British Telecom van, you know, seeing who went in, what Alan went in, and 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 I thought, yeah, it'd be a movie, it'd be good if we could do it. Can you and, take us through the day? What it was like getting prepared? Yeah. Um, we met up. We met up at my pals. You know, I've got, got you know a really good friend of mine who I work with, uh, ex army guy. Um, my other guys that I work with, uh, one of them six for four. Um, I've known these guys all my life. There's five of us, and um, we met up. We uh, we checked all our uniforms, made sure everything was right, made sure the cuffs, the radios were all working, the hats. We go and pick the dog up, made sure we had the van, the car, all sorted, and then uh, you know we 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 sat around, we had a chat, people. People do different things, you know. One of my mates is as uh, a talker. Uh, one of them is a humorous, uh, and he's telling jokes all the time. Uh, one of them's quite insulated. He, he, he like, he's just he's just there. Me, I like to I like to ruminate on a bit of work, you know. Um, I'd go over every single thing, you know, what could go wrong, you know, the getaway, everything, and I'd spend hours just going through it in my head, you know, the anxiety, the the thing. I'd feel it before I even done a job. Uh, normally, the fear of doing something is probably worse than what it is. And and then that always prepares me. Um, so I remember going down there. We went down about about half six, seven o'clock. And uh, as we were driving on it, fucking the sirens went off behind us. And uh, it, was a, it was a police car. <laughs> and uh, so it, it come flying past us. But we, we as we were moving, we were going to pull over onto the side uh, to go onto the forecourt where this place was. And uh, we just kept on on, on moving. And uh, so we drove around, but at that time we thought, fucking hell, that was really lucky, you know, because we, was, you know, for them split seconds, what the fuck has happened? Or, you know, are they on us? And uh, are they going to stop us at the end of the road? But we dropped, we went round and, you know, we said, you know, a couple of guys said, should we abort and come back? And I said, no, we're, gonna, we're just going to go on it. Everyone's now, is adrenaline's flying. We're all kitted out. We got, we had the police uniforms on, we got the dog in the back. Wow. We got everything. And all of a sudden we pulled onto the pavement, we pulled about 20 yards on, onto its like driveway. And and uh, the car the car pulled up the side. I got out, knocked on the door. The, you know the guys all got out of the vans and the cars all dressed, and the dog was there. And I just knocked on the door. The guys guys come over security, head of security, big guy, and uh, just said to um, you know we've had reports that there's uh, someone getting in on the roof, you know. So we're coming in, you know. And he said, oh, "What's going on?" So he said, "Open the door." Um, he's let us in now, and. Uh, We've gone in now, and I said, you come with me. I said, well, like, we'll have reports of someone coming in. And I said, we've also had reports that one of them is dressed like a security guard. Yeah. <laughs> for my shit. So, for my protection and my officer's protection, I'm going to have to cuff you. And I, and I said, turn around. And he, and he went, all right. And I thought, that was lovely. He's fucking, he's quite a big lump. So I took him out of the game, and I walked back in. I said, right, do them all. So we got, there's, I think there's about six of them now. That was all on the cameras and everything else. And then we done a recce of the building. We nicked a couple of them. There was a couple walking around. We took them out of the game. And then we went and got about six or seven um, maintenance guys and then a, and a few other people that were there. Um, put them on the stairwell. And then we just said, listen, you know, we're here because there's, 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 there's intruders on the premises. So we're going to go around with a dog now. You know, blah, blah, blah. So, so we just, we left them there with one of my pals and we just went and we went, we found the mainframe room. And why we was why we was there? I was in reception because I was, you know, I was orchestrating them being kept. I was making sure that there were, everything else was working. And all of a sudden, the, the, the phone went off in the reception, 
and I didn't realise at that time that they had another live stream security company on the on the on where we were. Oh. Uh, but it was on the door that, that we went in. So so I picked it up, and um, I said, "What's what's, uh, what's going on? All the cameras have gone down because we pulled all the live feeds out." I said, "Well, we just had a, we've had a major surge through the system, through the mainframe system, and this be up and up and up and running in about 10, fifteen to twenty minutes. Is there a problem?" And he went, "Okay, no problem. I'll, I'll call you back." And I put the phone down, radioed everyone, said, "Listen, we've we've got an on top." I said, "You know, we need to start. We need to start moving." But you know what? The, we had to to drill all the, the motherboards out, so that takes about forty five minutes. So the, the time was ticking by. We had old Bill coming past. We had all these all these people wrapped up in the in the in the, in the stairwell, and we had maintenance people coming in. And then it got to the stage. It got to the stage, right? We had I think we had sixteen pairs of handcuffs, and they was all they was all uh, they was all tied up. They was all wrapped up, and uh, I ran out of handcuffs. And I and I had these two security two guys coming in, and I just I just told them to get in the lift and go to their floor, <laughs> you know, because we had we had an incident. So they went in, and then we just calmed down. It was like really it was calm. And then all of a sudden we got the shout, let's go. Um, so we got all we brought all the bags up. This is why they call it the Ocean's Eleven job because we had we had uh, one we had the police uniform, but we had we had all um, we had all uh, washing bags, you know, washing bags. And there was all a, a, a line of them, about twenty of them. So we all then went behind them and we 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 walked out, you know. So we had two in each hand and we all walked out. And then we came back and done it again. And then we took the, and, I, and I said uh, to the to all the security guys, I'm really, really sorry for for, for inconveniencing you all, and um, hopefully we'll, someone's going to come and release you in a minute, um, and that'll be it, and we'll be on our way. And then we, we everyone went out, I locked the door, and uh, and that was it. I was in the van, and uh, about 45 minutes we were back on the plot, and it was it was just a relief. We went and dumped all the gear, dumped the vans, burnt them out, everything else, and we we, we ended up about half past one in the morning finished. Got back to my pal's house, and that was when we just sort of unwind, had a, had a few beers, had a laugh and a joke, and then we were on our way home. Who was in charge of counting the cash? Uh, we, it was that that time. It was motherboards, so you know we, you know, we, it was all motherboards. So it's, it's, so motherboards are computer chips. So you get about twenty. Oh. So you get computer chips in, and look for for a, for the last you know for the last few years when we were doing it, you know, like you can nick a million quid. Yeah, you can two million quid, but the insurance dictated it after that that you can only you can only have a hundred or three hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of chips on your premises. Ah. So Verizon for us was was an, an enigma simply because it was a mainframe computer center, and it, the the motherboards could range from between one million, two million, three million, four million to twenty million. Great. So we went so we went in there and we we decided to to have a go. At it. You know, just it was really, you know, they boasted on their website that it couldn't be done. You know, so we we thought we'd, we'd have a go at it. How do you turn that into cash? You know, you got you got people that buy buy it. They break them down. They sell them. So the headlines ranged from one million to five million that you guys took. Yeah, um, you know, you know, certain papers um, said it was one million. Uh, some said it was three. Some said it was four. Um, J.P. Morgan took out a private prosecution against me for five million, um, and they said I couldn't even win the lottery when I got out of prison. Um, because I owed him five million quid, so I can only assume uh, it was worth a little bit more than the than what people thought. But you had to go on the run. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. After after that, um, you know, we we went back to our normal lives, and um, um, one of my friends' associates uh, got caught on a, on a, on a bit of work, and um, because we were all friends. How um, did he get caught? 
the police turned up. <laughs> the real police got turned up. Um, one of the old Bill got an hiding. Well, he was dressed as a cop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it, was a, it, was, it, was, it was quite funny when we, we spoke about it. But uh, you know, I, I suppose after, you know, now it's not so funny. But that was sort of the, the catalyst for the end game. Um, because, they, they, you know, because I was a known associate of his, they then, they then showed my picture to the security guys at Verizon. And they said, that's him. That's the guy that done all the talking. That's the guy that is was a prick basically um, and uh, and the next thing I knew every every uh, buyer I had for this was, was shut down every every person I knew was getting raided all my families and friends and I was fortunate enough that I was I was actually in my girlfriend's uh, another girlfriend it wasn't the one I was with at that time I was with another girlfriend and um, I looked out the window it was about half past five in the morning and I saw, I saw a guy walk past and it didn't look right. I see a girl walk past and they just didn't look right. They both had trainers on. They didn't look right. So my girlfriend was in bed and I just I just walked back in from the from the balcony and I jumped out through the back door up onto the roof, run along uh, the, the top of the roof and uh, I, I went down and looked like, a, like a, a metal staircase and I jumped about 20 foot to the floor. And, and then and as I came out, all I could see was like, like 20 old bill and they was all had shields and everything else and they was all going in, into that into the block where I was living and uh, next thing I knew that was it I, mean, I was I was gone and I knew that they, they were after me that was the, my, that was the first time I realised that they, uh, they they had me in their sights and you, there was a 25 man team flying squad yeah. that was uh, after you yeah so some of the early people who got arrested then ended up with 10 11 year sentences yeah you know they got they all got they got caught um and um they all went uh, not guilty and got found guilty and they got 10s and 11s so i just assumed that i would probably get the same um but you know i wasn't going to give myself up i stayed away for just just under a year um and i can remember i was i was just trying to get my passport to go to thailand because my mate had a couple of bars out there and I was up in Lee Graves then. Uh, I was I was standing on a canal boat and I had a little cottage up there. And I was I had a, I had a really nice girlfriend. We was you know I was going training every day. I was living a normal life. You know I was training. I was looking you know I look I looked the part. I was eating healthy. Um, and I just arranged. I was speaking to him on the phone the day before, and I said, "Well, I've sorted out a passport, um, and I, hopefully I'll be with you in a week or so." But, you know, and uh, as I was walking along, you know the whole. That whole fucking row came alive with old Bill. You know, I can, I can remember it was, it, was, it, was, it was always in slow motion. A car came across across the grass, and there was a wall here, and I couldn't move. And it, and, it's, and it, he came right in front of me. I fuck, I went to turn like that. Another one came and smashed. They basically smashed into each other. I jumped, and where I'd rolled, um, I came crashing down. And as I went to go, a van pulled up, and all these old Bill got out with balaclavas and everything else, and they just fucking just started weighing the life out of me. Uh, they handcuffed me, and for a moment, they, they thought I was the wrong person because <laughs> they were holding this picture up. Is it him? Because they thought I was six foot four. You know, they, you know, for some reason, the guy that the old Bill got nicked or got whacked on the other job, he had turned around and said the guy that hit him was me. It wasn't, uh, and said that I was six foot four. You know what I mean? So they was thinking, well, this cunt's only this, this guy's only six foot. So with that, they've cuffed me. They they they, they show me uh, the idea, and then they started clapping, and then we've got him. We've got him, and I was actually quite relieved at that stage because mm. I was I thought I was actually getting kidnapped. You know, so it was actually quite a relief that I was one. I was nicked, and one I wasn't getting kidnapped by some Serbians or whatever. And, and then um, we drove back to Cam, uh, Kentish Town Police Station, and, and that was that was quite a moment. You know, it was a realization I was going to go away for a long time. And 
we uh, we drove into the yard there, and as we came in, you know, the desk sergeant was there, and there was about twenty old Bill, and they was all clapping. <laughs> so we fucking got him at last because they'd been around everywhere, you know. And do you know what? I, I I just said, you know what? It's a fair cop. It's done, isn't it? You know, they 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 got it. In, they got me in the end, and I, you know, fair play to him. Judge wants to give you twenty three years. Well, at that stage, you know, I thought I'd go guilty. Thought you know I'll have a guilty. I'll go on a Newton hearing and see what he was going to give me. I was expecting nine, ten, whatever. And then all of a sudden he came back down and said, "We're going to give you twenty-three fucking years." So I said, "Bollocks! I'm going to go. I'm going to go not guilty then." And then, um, so then, then we had a bit of tone and frown and said, "Right, look, if you go guilty, we're going to give you nine years." So that's less than all my mates. And I said, "All right, going because I'm going guilty now." Um, they all went not. They all went not guilty and got found guilty. So I go guilty. So he's going to give me a nine. So when on the day that I got sentenced, he actually gave me a consecutive. So he gave me another. So he gave me my nine, and he gave me a, a six, seven, which made it. I think at that time, sixteen years, nine months, and and that's how he fuck, That's how he. That's how he got me. You know. So I couldn't appeal it because I got nine. I got less than them. There was there was the disparity between the sentences, um, but he he he, he done me up like a kipper. But I think I think. Uh, I think I deserved it at that time simply because when I was arrested for this, I went to St Anne's ID suite in, in Tottenham, and and when I was there, um, they put the handcuffs on me. It was wrong, you know. I slipped to cuffs, and I ended up whacking a copper, and I ended up going over the wall there. I ended up getting three broken ribs, and um, busted shoulder, busted thigh, and then when I got back to um, Pentonville, they put me under a psychologist. And that was the start of the new beginning for me. So that wasn't a kind of an escape attempt then? Yeah, you know what? I always had this voice inside my head that, that was very prevalent all the time. You know, it's, it's, a, it's the voice that I guess you got me in trouble and got me out of trouble. And I can remember I, in the, I was in the van and then, and then the, the cuffs were loose. And uh, I, I, this, this voice was saying, fucking hell, just give us a go. You know, you're gonna, you can, we can do this. You know, there's only eight of them. You know, there was two cars and, and I was in the van. And when we got there, the... the the first car pulled up and no one got out. I thought, lovely. Um, the guy, the other va- a car pulled across to the wall. No one got out. And so now I'm with free old Bill. And, um, you know, the one, the driver's got out. He was a lump and he's gone in and knocked on the door and walked in there. So now I've got two, two, two old Bill. And I thought, fuck it, I'll have them, both of these. And all of a sudden, the one behind me started reading the paper. And the other guy stepped down and opened the door. It was like, it was like a red rag to the ball. So I, I weighed him in, um, put him on his ass, and I, and I was gone. Uh, but I still had one cuff on me. It was it was one of them, not the rigid ones. It was a, it was a, sorry, it was a rigid one. It won't bend. So I've gone flying around the corner. There's, there's a couple of old Bill come through the gate, and I thought, oh, fuck, I've had to come back on myself. By this time, they've all come. Everyone's got out of the cars, everything else. And I've run on, on top of a car, onto a van, jumped at the wall, and I was just about to pull myself up. Then all of a sudden, someone's an arm's gone around my neck. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm trying to pull myself up. This fucking handcuff stuck on the wall on top of it. I can't move. And all of a sudden, I've gone down. And next thing, I'm getting weighed in again. And, you know, just a, a few, a, a stroke of luck that my barrister had walked in there and said, look, God, it's, what's happening here? You know, and I said, well, look, they've just fucking jumped me. You know, and, and uh, he, he, then, he then made sure they didn't beat me. And they took me back to Pentonville, where I was charged with escape salt and everything else and I think that's, that's the reason why I got the extra extra sentence because I was a, I was a fucking idiot on the back of my book Hard Time 
which became a reoccurring theme for me in Max Security in Arizona. You see the picture of the cockroach? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I hear, I hear you've got some stories. Yeah. Well, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was in a block for a little while and, in, you know, I was, it was covered in cockroaches. Um, you know, I had, to, I had to tie all my bags up because I was running alive in there. And then they moved me to the, the main wing. And I thought, oh, well, I was in Apaches at the time. And they gave me the number one cell. When I walked in, it was just like, it was, I couldn't believe it. There's cockroaches everywhere. So I cleaned the whole cell. And, I, you know, I'm, I can go into a bank, anything. I can do anything. And I'm not scared of anything. And these little fucking things were climbing everywhere. You know, where I picked up a cup, they run out. And I can remember, you know, thinking, God, is this my life? And then I was laying there one night, and, and uh, the cockroach fell in my face. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I got up and smashed my head on the bunk <laughs> and, I, and I, I was going fucking spare you know and uh, I then went and spoke to the governor and he said don't tell anyone because they'll all want one so I thought well, you know what you you know I, I'll, I'll show you so what I did I went back to my cell and over a, a couple of week periods um, I've, I've got this black HMP bag put it up on the wall and, and I started catching the instead of killing them I started catching them and putting them in there I've had about 120 I, I, I remember <laughs> And uh, they were they were doing the inspection, and um, there was about fifteen or twenty women there and guys and everything. I was all there in the clipboards, and they painted the wing all fresh. And and one of my mates had bought me some chickens because he worked on the op plate and left my door open. So so my door was open. I had all the cockroaches on, and then I heard all these people. And so I looked out and I see I see the governor. I thought, oh, fucking, it would be great if I could get him. So he then edged himself up to me, and there's a pool, sa- pool table outside my my, my cell. And the screws that are normally looking after him were pretty relaxed because there was no one out apart from all these people. So they was in the office. There was one by the side of him, and I thought, oh, I've got to do this. So I, so I cracked the door a little bit, picked up the bag, and I walked out, and I put it over his head. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I threw all the cockroaches over all of them, and they was all screaming and everything else. And then, and then uh, next thing I knew, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was heading down the, the block, uh, and I was getting a, a pretty good kick in. <laughs> but... You know, I think the actual screws actually found it quite funny because they never really gave me a proper riding. They was actually quite quite lenient compared to what they were normally like. Um, and next day, I, I, I was woken up at half past one in the morning and told I was no longer welcome in Pentonville Prison. <laughs> and they were fucking kicking me out to Wandsworth. So off I went, uh, half past one in the morning, down to reception. And I was met with, there was three or four other guys there that were very disruptive, uh, like, like myself, I think. And we was all put on the sweatbox the uh, next morning and, and carted off. Any big names like Bronson? I, I, you know what? I, I, I was just sent in my book as I was trying to, uh, No, there wasn't any big names. You know what? I met some real good characters over that, that period. You know, um, you know, I, in my in my time in prison, um, one of them in particular stands out was uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan. You know, real gentleman. You know, I, I, I remember spending a couple of years on in Swaleside with him on my food boat really lovely guy he was like mine Mike. you either loved him or hated him um, but I loved him um, when I was in this last one before I went to Grendon um, I was up in Rye Hill with uh, t- uh, t- um, Terry Adams real lovely fella from the Angel a uh, real good f- friend of ours and, and and Tony Brindle you know another another good guy so I can remember sitting at the table with all them and, and, and three armed robbers you know these three armed robbers were you know, there was uh, one of them was sixty, one of them was sixty-five, and I think one of them was seventy. And and I can remember sitting there. This was the time I decided that I needed to change my life because there was a few young kids there. We was all having a laugh and a joke, and they were talking about these robberies. And they were they were sixty years old and they come at seventy. And I thought, 
fucking, I'm going to do another eight years in it. Am I, am I going to actually, am I going to have young kids looking up to me and, and, and want to aspire to being a fucking idiot? You know, so I decided that that was the time for me. I was going to sign up to go to HMP Grendon. I told, I told the boys and they said, listen, man, you, you're going to be living with the beast if you go there. And, and uh, I said, well, you know what? I can't do it here. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do another eight years in prison and go through the same, same routine, the same jokes, the same everything, the same reinforcement. So I said, I'm going I'm I'm to put an app in, I'm going to go there. And four months later, I was, I was there. And that's where you started to write your book, was it? I've, I've, yeah, um, well, first I had to experience it, you know, I had to, I signed up for Grendon, I was told that Grendon was, uh, you know, was a, was a flagship uh, prison that was actually uh, turning men's life around as far as, you know, stopping them from committing crime ever again. So for me, it was like, you know, wouldn't that be great, you know, because the rest of the prison system is fat and spectacular. You know, it's, it's, for me, it's broken, there's 10,000 lesser officers and they're expected to run like a... You know, as if it's actually at top capacity, you know, and they're stopping reoffending. But yeah, it's, a, it's just a joke. So for me, it was either stay there, go through all the rehabilitation programs, which I knew that didn't work, you know, and just go through the, main, the motions or the pretense or the perception of, of change. Or do I give myself an opportunity to change my life by going to therapy? You know, Grendon uh, was unique by its regime because the whole prison was, was, was lent over to therapy. Um, it housed 228 men, uh, some of the worst prisons in the, in the, in the prison system from paedophiles, rapists, serial killers, child killers, everything, you know, so, but I was pretty lucky, I, I, I'd read about it, I read that um, Ray Ray Bishop had gone there as an, as an armed robber, um, Ray Noel, uh, Noel Razor Smith went there, um, and people, and they were ex-armed robbers, people I respected, and, and, I'd, and I'd, I'd read that they turned their lives around, so I thought, well, I can't let these 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 other deviants and and you know spoil an opportunity. So I, I thought I'd go there. You know I wasn't going to listen to everyone else. So so I signed on the dotted line and I was off. Tell us about the prisoner you called Birdhand. Oh, Bird Birdhand. Oh, you, you know what? There was there was so many there. You know, um, you know I met Birdhand as soon as I walked in there. He had um, he'd, he'd got befriended a young girl on the on the canal. Um, and then he then tried to kiss her. He was only, I think he was about 19. She was, he was only a young girl. Um, and because she didn't return the kiss, he then strangled her and then threw her lifeless body into the canal. So he fought and uh, it was only f- f- uh, f- through luck that, um, that someone was passing by and pulled her out and that she was alive. So he, he then got, because he had mental problems, he then got, I think, 12 years. Um, but the whole idea of Grendon is that you... You go there and you sign a no violence compact. So you know you have to listen to other men. You know, and the first thing you do, you know, the first thing you do is you say, "This is what I'm in for." My name's Terry Ellis, and uh, I'm an arm robber. Uh, and this is what I did. And then you then communicate with that person. And I can remember them first twelve weeks were a fucking nightmare. You know, I can remember coming up to a guy. Um, his name is Gavin. And um, he said he'd split up with his girlfriend. So the funny thing is, when you start talking to someone, they start reliving it. And they actually go through the motions and they, and they live it. So it makes it more... The stories that you hear in Grendon are not like mainstream prisons. You know, mainstream prisons, you hear you hear stories, but they're all reinforced, you know, bits of crap that you... Uh, you know. How much money I robbed and yeah, how yeah. many birds it's, it's I was with yeah. in Las Vegas. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I've got this guy in front of me, and, you know, my name's Gavin, and... Um, 
I'd split up. I'm, I, was, I was separating from my wife. We were going for a messy divorce, but we were both living together. And I had a nine-year-old daughter and a six-year-old daughter. And I'd, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and decided to kill myself. And um, I was taking, I had a bottle of uh, whiskey and I had a bottle of pills. And, you know, I started taking a pill and having a drink. And, you know, my daughter came down. I was crying. And um, she said, Daddy, Daddy, what, what, um, why are you so upset? And he said, um, I'm going to heaven. And then she said, Daddy, Daddy, can I come with you? And he said, yeah. So he started, he gave her a tablet and he gave her a drink and then she, she got drowsy and she fell, fell asleep and she wasn't dead. So he, he went to the kitchen uh, drawer, he put a bag over her head and then she started, you know, he said she was, she was scratching him, she was trying to get out and all of a sudden she, her body went lifeless. But as he was doing it, you know, there's a part of me that wanted to fucking kill him. I think it's the reason I wrote the book because, you know, after after listening to all the stories I did there, you know, that was just you know a couple. Uh, you know, you walk into another room and then and then I meet I meet you know, uh, Clacton Andy and he, I said he then started to regurgitate his fucking debauchery. What have uh, you done? He had uh, he had picked up a prostitute. Um, he got her in the car and he drove her to a garage, uh, garages, and he had pulled up against the wall so she couldn't get out. And he said he had a fetish, and the fetish was that he would like to blindfold her while she stuck her, t- her tongue out. She then uh, uh, obliged, he, she stuck her tongue out, and he bit it off. Bit it off? Yeah. And uh, so. What, you, what did he do with her after that? He beat the shit out of her and left her for dead, and then drove off. And then, uh, you know, you know, you go into another room, and you, you know, and you. You think you know someone, you, you link in with them, and all of a sudden they, they're, they're talking about the fact they, they, they chopped a guy up. And, and as they drove past this guy's girlfriend, they, they took the guy's hand out and waved, to, waved that to her. And, you know, these are the people I was, I was around. You know, I met Brian Blackwell who killed his mum and dad. Why did he do that? Uh, he, you know, he was nicking money off them, um, and they'd found out um, he'd been leading a double life. Wasn't the scouse, was he? I think he might have been, yeah. So I think I saw a program about yeah, Scouse at it. Yeah, it was, not, it was on a few, a few weeks ago as well. Brian was very, very, very manipulative. Um, you know, he'd, he'd gone home and he'd killed his dad with an hammer and then he killed his mum. I think I've seen this yeah, on TV. Yeah, he was there. And then, and then, you know, you're going to another room and then, and then I'd speak to Chris and then Chris would just tell me that he's just, uh, he got fed up with, with, with his life, you know. I was trying to make sense of all the, all the crimes, but he just said, I, I, I got fed up with my life. I wanted to change it, so I thought I'd, 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 I'd kill my wife. And then he, he took a golf club to her head, and then um, his sick 18-month-old daughter walked into the room, and he took the golf club to her, and he killed Jesus her. Jesus Christ. So, so now I'm in a place where I'm being bombarded with, with, with the worst crimes ever, and, and I can't get it out of my head. So for months and months I was there, so I started writing. I thought, you know what, if I start writing, you know, I can get it out. And that's when I wrote Living Amongst the Beasts. Um, but you know what, it's, you know, as much as, as much as I was listening to these stories, and the thing that is so unique about Grendon is that, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I started to feel empathy. As I'm listening to these uh, stories, I'm, I'm being, becoming more empathetic towards the victims. I'm becoming more uh, empathetic towards the kids. I'm now thinking about my own kids. So I'm now reinforcing that. So all of a sudden, I'm learning. I'm learning tolerance because I'm around these people, and I want to kill them. 
you know, I want to destroy these people, but I can't, you know, because I, I you know, it's going to spoil my opportunity to actually to, to, to deal with my problems. Was there any moments yeah. where you were on the verge of doing something to somebody? Yeah, quite a few times, you know. Um, I, th- I think after 12 weeks, I decided that I fucking had enough. You know, I was going to go. I'd listened to people that had killed kids, I'd, I, you know, rapists. And and it was really strange because I came back from, I came back on, onto the wing and uh, everyone was sitting around and they looked terrified. They were fucking, they was all like this. And he was a big man, you know, they, they'd all, they killed kids and they fucking raped us and everything else. They were deviant. Most of them were deviant scum, but, but they were all frightened. And, uh, and I said, what's going on? And they said, well, this guy on the other wing had just killed another fellow on there. He he'd took him into the cell and he'd, and he'd smashed him in such a way. He'd, he'd, his head was like a squash. The guy was a paedophile and the guy, or the other guy that killed him was a lifer. He killed a girl. But he had taken all his anger and frustration out on this guy and killed him. Now, we've gone to a place where it was a no-violence rule. They've all signed up for this because they want an easy life as far as I was concerned because I don't see any change in, in you know through the time I was there with most of them. And all of a sudden, they've, they've walked into a place where one of their lot has just been murdered. And, and not, in, not murdered just by a knife or strangulation. This guy was, there was blood on the, on the ceilings, the walls, and the geezer was covered in clara. And, and, and that was the time I thought, you know what, I'm going to stay. Because you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn. I'm going to learn everything I can about this lot. And I'm going to learn how to, how to fight back and how to articulate. Because I only had one response all my life, and that was violence. This is the only tool I ever had. So now all, all I'm doing now, I'm thinking, well, maybe if I can start operating at a completely different level, level instead of fight or flight, I can, I, can, uh, I can start to articulate. And that's what I did. So, you know, there were so many learning processes. So I learned tolerance the first few weeks. I learned that the empathy started to come in out because for the first time in my life, I actually went beyond the door and cried. You know, I, I cried my, my eyes out and I, and I never cried before. What brought you to that point? I think, you know, listening to these guys and thinking of my kids, you know, because normally you just switch off, you know. So now I'm, I'm, I can remember sitting, I just remember going into my, into my room and just crying, you know. And, and that, was the first, that was the first little release, you know. Um, and it was, a, it, was, it was the little incremental releases over that period of time that, that I started to see the anger dissipate and replace with a bit more light and a bit more common sense and a bit more aptitude to actually do what I was supposed to be there for. Um, you know, because it, it was at the end of the day, it wasn't about them. As much as the, the, I was surrounded by these people, it wasn't about them, it was about me, it was about my change, it was about dealing with the fact that I was abandoned as a kid, the fact that I, I'd, I'd come from a, a family that was was corrupt, um, and, and, and you know, I'd normalised my upbringing as if, like, it was okay. So for now, dealing with it made me even more upset. So actually getting involved and feeling that empathy for the first time made me made me realise that I'd... I didn't have the best upbringing, you know? I agree with that. As you're talking about your crimes to people in there then, are you starting to get empathy for your victims as well, people you're tied up and stuff? And I, such? I, I think for me it was like a double-edged sword, you know, as, as for, for, a, for a few months when I first started doing it, I kept thinking, well, you know what, I'm actually, my crimes ain't that, that bad compared to these fuckers. So I justified it then. And this is what we do, we justify ourselves by other people's crimes. So it was about it was about taking my head off, unscrewing it, and actually putting it back on, and actually starting operating on a completely different level. It was about understanding it and saying, "Well, you know what? F- fuck all these lot. Well, this is what you did tell. You know, you went in with, with shotguns, you terrorised people, and you know how can you justify that? So letting go of that criminal value was really hard. You know, because I, you know, I'd, 
I, I, I stayed by this criminal value and this this, uh, this belief that I was uh, you know I was, I was doing the right thing all my life. So to actually come to terms with the fact that I destroyed lives, I destroyed my my kids' lives, my every single relationship I've ever had, and and coming to terms with that, but also trying to understand it. So where I've been self-medicating for years and years and years, and no matter what I did inside rehabilitation-wise, I still went out and went at it, still went out and started drinking, still went out and committed uh, adultery and everything else. I was now working on issues I'd never explored before. So, and I started, I, I just started operating on a completely different level. Instead of, instead of fight and flight and attack, I was now articulating responses. Instead of being sarcastic, I was actually talking. So, but it worked because of who was there. It wouldn't work any other way. You know, so I was doing things that, that were contrary to what I would normally do. And, and, and for me, as, you know, it was fascinating. I found it really fascinating. I think it was rewarding. Um, but it was, also, it was also destroying me mentally because I had all these visions in my head. You know, I'd go to sleep and I'd... Because I really... I, I, I had a real good desire to change because I didn't want to live this life no more. But I also saw a lot of deception there from, from certain inmates. A certain inmates who I feel that would never change. So, so there was that, and I, and I, and I was on, in doing therapy with people that, that I knew were lying. You know, but you know, it's, it was a constant battle with just, just doing it, doing it, and doing the therapy. Because every time I did it, it let a bit of anger out, let a bit of emotion out. And when you start getting in touch with your emotion, you start crying, you start empathising, and you start thinking about things, and you do change. You know, I, I, I don't believe that, that, that Grendon is, um, will stop people from committing crime. I don't believe it's the medicine that, that fixes it, everything. But what I did see there was I saw, I saw grown men going through there and I saw how angry they were and I saw how they changed. So I think statistically, uh, Grendon has the same reoffending rate as most prisons, even though they, they say it doesn't. You know, most of the guys I met there had been back twice, sometimes three. So, so there's a reason why they don't have statistics in Grendon. But what I did see there, and what was different from mainstream prisons, is that even though we did have a killing there, the the anger was gone, the the self harm was gone, suicides were were, were practically non-existent there, um, and there was no assault on staff. So there was something about Grendon that had the worst criminals there that were able to deal with their inner issues and everything else and start functioning at a completely different level. So I believe it works. There's no doubt about it. There's certain things there, but it's not the medicine that cures recidivism and the revolving door of recidivism. So that's the reason why I wrote the books, because I needed people to, to learn the lessons that I learned, because it empowered me to actually move on in my life. You know, I, I now, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't take drugs, I don't womanize. And these were all things that I would never even have, have considered getting, getting through or getting past. But when I came out, it was so easy. It was so easy not to go into a pub, so easy not to accept a, a, a joint or a, a cocaine or anything off any of my friends. And when I got offered the first job, I was, it was actually I was empowered to, to say no because the one thing I learned in prison was I learned to deal with boredom, one. I also learned to say no because when you are in children's homes, that you, you feel for your friends because I, I can remember going on, on bits of work and... I, was, I wasn't going because I actually wanted to do it. I, I wasn't going because I actually enjoyed it. I was actually going on it because I didn't want my, my, my friend to get nicked because he, 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 he just didn't have it in him. So I found myself doing robberies for the fact that I was, didn't want him to get nicked or I didn't want him to get nicked. So 
I was now able to say no, which was one of the biggest lessons. No. And that's really the hardest because, I, you know, we feed into other people's embarrassment. When people say no to me, I accept it for what it is. But when someone asks me to do something, there's something in me that doesn't, that, that can't say no. Or I couldn't, you, you know, years ago. But now I can. I can say no because I'm not, you know, I don't want to get in that situation no more. I surround my, myself with people that uh, will enhance my life. Um, you know, we've, you know I've, I've, since I've come out of prison, um, we started our own business, Scoff Mills, with my daughter and her boyfriend. We started Camden Against Violence to help all the, the young kids in the area. You know, uh, we had eight killings in, in, a, in a space of two years. Um, you know, and, and that was just trying to teach the kids not to, you know, feed into a belief system that protects the murders of uh, sons and daughters. You know, how? I try to teach them that there's no honour in stabbing an unarmed person. There's no honour in shooting someone who's unarmed. You know, and, and, and I think we're, 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 we're making incremental steps, but we're not, you know, there's not a cure. But you know what? If I save one kid or two kids or three kids from going down the same road as me, I, I feel pretty pleased about that. Um, I also started the Band of Brothers, uh, brought it to the area where we got lots of guys in the area that isolate themselves. Um, so we, we bring them together. They've got real good life experiences and we train them as mentors and um, through the Band of Brothers organisation. And they then give something back, some of, some of their knowledge. So, you know, it's really good. And also an ambassador for uh, the Forward Trust. And that's, that's about helping ex-offenders and educating employers and, and saying that we are more than our past. You know, we, we, we can give, it, give a lot. You know, so I spend my time... I, I spend my time doing that. I've, you know, I was with um, um, Jeremy Corbyn, all the front bench a few months ago, um, Keir Starmer, you know, trying to... You know, I was on the knife crime task force there writing the white paper, helping them do that. So my life now is, is so fulfilling, you know, compared to, to what I was doing before. I don't think I could ever go back. But saying that, I left, I left prison. I left prison in, with a tent. You know, so I've, I don't know why I changed. I know that certain things I learned at Grendon were, were instrumental in me changing. Um, I became a born-again Christian, uh, which was, was another a bonus for me in the last year. I've got a real good network of friends that, I, that I've associated myself with. So I think all that helps me change and helps me move forward. Congratulations, man. You said that the suicide and self-harming was less at Grendon. Had you come across much of that before Grendon? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, you know what? I can, I, you know, I can remember a friend of mine, Ash. He'd done 18 years. He had one, he had one more year to go. And this is quite common, believe it or not, when most lifers leave prison. You know, they go through the stage and, you know, of, of, of self-flagellation. You know, they beat themselves up. The life, you know, the world's gone by outside, you know, and everything's changed. You know, we spend all our time in prison wanting to get out, but most of us come out to, to a completely different world. And after doing a life in prison, you know, I remember Ash, I remember having dinner with him the night before with two or three of us. He'd done his washing. He was, he was joking, you know, he was, you know, he was laughing and joking and uh, said, see you in the morning, see you at breakfast. And then, um, you know, the next morning I had the bell go off. Then I saw the medics come running across and I see him running back out and I see him get a defib. And then, and then I, I don't know who it was. We didn't know who it was because he was upstairs, I was downstairs. And uh, I shouted across to my pal, what's going on? He don't know, I don't know what's going on. And then the ambulance came and then, and then an helicopter landed. And then and I saw, because I, I was right near the main gate and I saw the, heli I saw the, 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 the gurney come in 
and I see these, these guys all running with their bags and there was, there was an urgency and and I was just thinking what the fuck's going on and about you know, 15, 20 minutes later I see the gurney come out and the urgency had gone you know they was they was they was looking at each other and then he came down on, on the gurney you know, uh, I, you know I didn't know it was him all I see was a dead body on there and and when I came out let's say a couple of hours later and I said what happened and they said well Ash is dead you know, I was shocked. You know, so you know, and I met lots of guys in prison. I met one one uh, black guy, young kid. He's, he just got twenty one years, and he was in bits. And I spent a bit of time with him trying to help him because I think you do when you're away. You just you just don't like to see it, you know people going through the same shit as you do. So you try to help. And he was a young kid, and I said, "Look, mate, it's, it's going to get better. You're going to adapt." And I thought I got him in a really good place. And uh, I was working on a hot plate, giving some extra food. And I said, if you need anything, you know, just let me know. And I never saw him the next day. I never, I never even went looking for him because, you know, you help so many people. And then I carried on working on the hot play. And, and then my mate said to me, he's dead. He's in a cell. He killed himself last night. You know, so, you know, it became common. You know, I've, I've, I've you know, swell side people killed herself. In the man, someone killed herself. Pentonville. You know, it was, it was crazy. It, 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 it's, 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 you know, it's common. You know, I think... I think um, in 1974 they uh, made care in the community. They shut down all the all the all the mental homes and everything else. And what they did, they put all these people into into sheltered accommodation and they gave them their own places and they and they gave it care in the community. And and then uh, when they couldn't function out there, they put them all inside. So you got a lot of people with mental health in prison. You know, I can remember going to the hatch, and you would see ten or fifteen people there in, in the course of a day. But now you'll see a continuous line. And you'll see people with schizophrenia. You'll see people walking about, scratching and shit, you know, screaming and everything else. And it's a real fucking really bad place. You know, you got landings and landings and landings lent over now to mental health. You know, and it's in, and they're all mixing together. You know, and the thing is, it's 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 like a time bomb. You know, you've got you've got guys that that will stab you in the face for no other reason than that they're paranoid. And I saw it. I saw screws get stabbed in the face. I've actually, you know, I've actually jumped on one uh, inmate to stop him strangling a, 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 a screw. He was on the spice at the time, so I knew the screw. You know, normally I wouldn't have done it. It's only because I'd done Grendon that I actually, I actually helped him. <laughs> believe it or not. So I, I pulled him off and I said, like, you know, just calm yourself, Dan. He got up and, and, and run the screw and got help, and then the kid got uh, taken to hospital because spice is is rife in prison. You know, it's it's. it's yeah, I can't tell you how bad it is with, with spice. You know, there was a time if you if you looked like you was out your nut, you'd be down a block. <laughs> now the block is somewhere you go for an holiday, because the um, the wings are just packed with with uh, with spice, drugs, everything. It's like a free for all in prison. And then if anyone tells you any different, they're lying. You know, I, I know. I just, what I, year did I, you get out? I got out in two thousand and sixteen. Really recently. Yeah, I've also got friends still in now, and and nothing's changed. You know, we, uh, you know, as much as I turn my life around, there's certain things that I feel that have benefited prison, and one of them is mobile phones. Because for the first time in the history of the prison system, you're actually getting shots of what is actually going on in there. You're getting you're getting pictures of guys punching the hell out of someone simply for uh, for sport, for amusement. You know, they give them a spice joint, and for taking a spice grind, I'm going to punch you in the face and break your jaw. You know, but then these are all coming to the forefront now, so... We took ten thousand prison officers out of, out of the system. It's in complete chaos, but we have a 
we have a the prison authorities of turning and saying it's actually working so much better that we took 10,000 prison officers out. It's just like, you know, and most landers you go inside prison. The experience uh, SO on, the, on, that, on that landing now has is, is got 18 months experience, which is crazy. So I think that's the reason why we've had so many riots in the last couple of years. Um, there's a lid on it now. It's been privatised. Um, it's not functioning as it should. Rehabilitation is, is not... I don't even know why they actually call it rehabilitation because it doesn't work, you know, but it does need some fundamental change in there. And the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the funny thing is they spend hundreds of millions of pounds on service providers in prison that don't don't actually work. It's government contracts. Yeah. Getting pocketed. I, 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 another reason why I wrote, I've got another book coming out at the Christmas. It's called The Final Countdown to My Freedom. I chronicled my whole, the whole journey for a decap because I actually left there with a tent, as I said. But they got a CRC there uh, that's supposed to rehouse you. And, and apparently they can't even do a referral. They can't even refer you to a housing. Um, and, but they've got a 93% success rate of rehousing ex-offenders. And over that period, I kept thinking, what, how does this work? If they can't do a referral and they can't do anything, what, how have they got a 93% success rate? So what I did, I chronicled everything. And I remember doing the forms when I went there. And I remember doing the forms when I left there. And, and, and I remember that when I went to get my travel warrant to go to, back to the place where I should have been living in that area, they said, well, you need an address. I said, I haven't got an address. I've got nowhere to live. And they said, you can't have this travel warrant unless, unless you give me an address. So I then found out that the reason they got a 93% success rate is that you, once you give that address, that's classed as a successful rehousing. <laughs> so they're getting hundreds of thousands of pounds a year, if not millions. And then and on the day you leave prison, um, you actually go in there with all your stuff and you're going home and you're, you know, you're, you've, you've been away for eight years and all of a sudden they tell you that they haven't got nothing set up for, for you leaving homeless. So I said, well, because you haven't done your job right. The service provider hasn't done his job right. The CRC hasn't done their right. And nor have you. But I'm leaving here today homeless. And they said, we haven't got nothing, uh, to, you know, we haven't got nothing to facilitate that. So you can't, you can't go tell. So I, was, I said, well, what's the, what's the procedure now? I said, we're well, going to have to wait till six o'clock. And this is eight o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, okay, I'll fucking wait then. But they said, if you give us an address, any address will do. That will then be classed as successful reality and you can fuck off. <laughs> so, you know, so, so any good intention I had at that particular moment about my rehabilitation and about all the work that I'd done went out the window. Because mm. I now had to leave prison in with a tent. I then had to go straight to my probation officer who promised me somewhere to live to be told that, tell me, tell me the postcode and the, the bench where you'll be living, Terry, and that will suffice. So... You know, I can see why there's a revolving door of recidivism. I can see why people are going in and out all the time, um, because we're missing we're missing some some key key points. You know, one is one is somewhere to live, one is a job, and one is education, and then we're lacking in all of them. Because I don't know if you you know you've you've done you've been in prison, I, I imagine, and um, you have yeah, <laughs> you have an American prison with the cockroaches the same as me. Um, you know, we have a 40% uh, the people that return to prison. You know, so that's the revolving door. So when you go into prison, you've got the other 60% that have had good educations. They've had all the advantages in life. They're white-collar workers. And the first thing they do when they go in prison is that they actually, they actually do education because it's an easy out. So because it's, it's run by service providers and, and CEOs, it's all about bums on seats and, and, and audits. 40% over here never get an opportunity to go and learn to read or go on education because they're working on the landings. So for me, we need to turn it on his head. We need to get rid of this 
we need to get rid of these 60% of, that have got all the ad all the advantages and put them on the wings. Uh, and then we need to concentrate on this 40%. Not audit, not not bums on the seats, but actually let's, let's really turn these last guys around because they're the 40% keep coming back. But they won't listen to me. They won't listen to Chris Austin and they won't listen to Joe Chapman who's set up a, a, his own groups to help ex-offenders and ex-prisoners and the formal trust. It's easy money in their own pockets. You're disrupting that flow. It's a massive multi-million pound business. I, yeah. actually, I, actually, set up, I actually set up a housing uh, organisation inside um, Spring Hill. And I was told if I carried it on any further and housed anyone else, because I got them in touch with uh, landlords and everything else, that I'd be sent back to the closed conditions because the CRC said that I was ruining their fucking reputation. Exactly. How dare you try and fix the situation? And, and then I had, I, I had uh, uh, the head of uh, the, the prison um, come and saw me. He was uh, the head governor there. And he said, listen, Cherry, we have got the Rolls Royce of uh, rehousing as offenders. So what is your problem? And he said, one more thing out of you and you'll be out of you. And that was it. So I had to close it down. Yeah, it's huge money. And yeah. the little guys, they don't want the little guys interfering. It's just yeah. big deals. Yeah. So you mentioned um, suicides. You didn't mention the self-harmers. What were they doing? Um, you know, people spill out in different ways. You know, I, you know, I think we all, we all suffer. For you know, when you do a long sentence, you suffer a little bit. You know, some guys cut up. I can, I can remember. I suffered a few times. You know, you get to a point in your sentence and you think this ain't ever going to end. You know, this ain't going to end. Everyone's getting older. People are dying outside. Your kids are moving on. They're getting married. They've got kids, and all of a sudden you're sitting there and you just, just, this, this. This is no end to this sentence. And then you find yourself shutting all the curtains in your cell, blacking everything out, turning the telly off, and putting the same music on time and time again and reliving the misery of because uh, it takes you back there. That's the sort of depression that is depression. And I know I went through that a few times. So it was about learning that, about having coping strategies and how do I get out of that. Um, and then I would see, I see guys, I see guys that chopped off their fingers. Chopped off their fingers. Yeah. Um, I, I know one guy was that, was that depression mental illness or yeah I think that was that was more mental illness because he had a history of cutting bits off his fingers he had like, on, his, on his hand he had all bits cut off the tips and everything else oh. and there was nothing they could do to that because he'd get a razor blade and do it so there was nothing now oh. I, one guy cut his dick off one cut guy his dick cut, off yeah in, in Swellside what was his situation to do that he, he had serious mental problems um, my mate was a listener Chris he actually went out and he came back and said, you won't fucking believe what just happened. He said, I've gone in and just cut his fucking dick off. And Were they able to put it back on? I don't know. <laughs> like Bobbitt, remember Bobbitt? Bobbit. Yeah, I think, you know, unless there was a, a contract for a, a, a dirty magazine for him, I imagine they would. But, I, you know, these guys have got mental health problems. I said, you know, they're, they're, they're all through the system. You know, they've been criminalised because of mental health. Mm. You know, these guys should be, they should be out, they should be looked after. But unfortunately, they've criminalised them. You know, criminalise mental mental disorders now. In America, the prison system is the biggest house of the mentally ill. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but that's another. You know, humans are commodities for the private prisons. But you know what? They're the easiest yeah. people to get the low level drug um, users and yeah. mentally ill people. But you know, but you know what? I, I one of my good friends there, um, had bipolar. You know, and um, Daryl, his name is, he's, he's actually, he's out of prison now, but he's actually in a secure unit of a mental hospital. But he had, he had moments of uh, lucidity or whatever, you know, clarity. And he was so articulate, you know, he used to write plays, he used to, he used to draw, do drawings, and he could develop things, you know. And, and he said even when he was in these stages, he actually knew exactly what he was doing. He actually wrote a paper about it. And, and he said he could, he could understand 
everything they were ever doing to him. In the, but he was acting completely different, but he didn't realise. But he said he was still aware of it. So these guys are, are really aware of what's going on. So, you know, but he said, you know, there were some people that came to me and they treated me like shit. You know, but I saw that, that I was, I was jabbing away. But I still knew what they was doing. And he said, but then there were some people that, that actually had, they, they cared. They, they worked in that job and they actually cared. You know, some of the healthcare providers are, are pretty good. And especially the mental health providers in prison. And he said, I always remember that, that one of the guys came in and started talking to me. And he said it was then at that moment that I actually started to come out of it. So for me, instead of locking these guys up and throwing away the key and the mental health and chucking them all in one place, I think we should be doing more. You know, we should be talking to them like human beings. We should be humanising them and we should be treating them with a respect instead of banging them away in prison. But there's no money to be made from that. Well, this is the problem. You know, in Scandinavia... You know, most of the countries out there, you know, they, they, they treat their prisoners so much better. You know what? They give them a job. They give them a house. And it all comes, it all comes, and an education, but it all comes with their prison plan. They're actually shutting down some prisons now in, in, in Holland and all these, and, and some of the Scandinavian places, because the reoffending rate has gone so, so, so much, you know, it's gone down so much. But so, then they don't reoffend and they don't come back, and then the prisoners loses their customers. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's afraid, you know we, we spend... You know, I think we spend £120,000 when you get arrested and it's 40 grand a, a year. So, you know, we talk about, you know, we, we, can't, we can't reward people who are doing crime. But you know what? We're still spending two or £300,000 through the, you know, but so if we set them up to, to succeed instead of setting them up to fail, we wouldn't have this revolving door all the time. You know, and this is, this is what we can't understand. You know, you get, the, you get the bleeding arts and you get people that... The problem with this country is that we have got a political system that every four years changes and no matter how good the system's run at that particular time, they come in and change it. So Labour will be more progressive, you know, education, learning and, and homes. The Tories would get in and, and it'd be no homes, no education, bang them up and this fucking hard Labour. Um, you know, we need to have some, uh, some joined up thinking. We need to get politics out of it. We need to let the governors and the prison staff actually run the prisons because they're the people that actually know. Because every, every, you know, for, for all the time I was in there, you got, you got the goves of this world would come in, the graylings would come in, and for some reason they'd stop you having stamps or they'd stop you having books. And you think, what has that got to do with rehabilitation? Well, some of the Scandinavian com um, countries have took it out of the hands of the politicians. Yeah. We have independent people. It's need, been yeah. really successful. Yeah. They could solve it, you know, a lot of this overnight by uh, ending the war on drugs. Having people in prison that are not low-level drug offenders, helping people with addiction issues, all that kind of stuff, but it would put them out of work. You know, we, so we, you know, we know that. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know, knowing that we need to, we need to, we need to turn our head. You know, like, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, dollars and, and pounds are being spent. You know, which are taxpayers' money. You know, surely if you had a business and you wanted value for money, you would not throw it into a bottomless pit like prison. The justice system in America is one of the biggest employers in the world now. Yeah. So you've got prison guards unions lobbying for tougher sentences. <laughs> you know, you know we, we talk about tougher sentences. You know, like in, in, in some states in America where they've got the death penalty, the actual, uh, the actual rate of murders is like, it's like 101% higher. The most states that ain't got it. So it's not deterrent. Harder sentences are not deterrent. The death penalty is not deterrent. But rehabilitation uh, and turning guys, uh, giving the guys some self-worth and turning their lives around is a success. Yeah, I agree. You know? What about dirty protests? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I can remember being in Ashford and, and I had this vision of, you know, I remember watching Bobby Sands, you know, the, the dirty protests. And I, I remember I was, I was 17. I just... 
just had an, uh, an head bite of the screw in Ashford. And and then when I got back, I got, I got beaten, so I decided to do a, a fucking dirty protest. And I was shitted in the pot. And and I picked it up and tried to smear it, and I thought, fuck this. It stunk. And I fucking washed my hands, and I thought, fuck that. You need to be a certain sort of person to actually do that. I'm not lying. There were some down there, they done it. They done a quarter of the wall. Some done half the wall. You have to be... You have to be at rock bottom to actually live in that. And I, I take my after all them guys that, that done uh, them smear protests because they were fighting for their, their rights and their freedoms and, and, and their political beliefs. You know, like, so I have to, you know, you have to take your after people that, that have, have got their mindset. I tried it and I swear to God, um, you know, I like cleanliness. I'm a, I'm OCD, you know, I like a clean cell, clean nails and clean valves. When were you most at rock bottom? I think there's, there's so many, so many, so many times. Um, you know, you look in a, when you go in prison, you you look in a, in the mirror, and you see yourself young. You know, and a couple of years later, you'll see, you'll see yourself going bald. <laughs> you see your teeth going a different colour. You know, you're getting older, you're getting thinner. You know, and you know people go home. You know, and that's when uh, the realization. You know, you know the first three years are in prison are really easy because it's all new, and then the next three are the same. And then you look at the next three coming, and you just think, "Fucking hell, man, is this ever going to end?" You know, and it, and it, it, you know, unless you you're strong and you're resilient, and you know, you do get through it. There's no doubt about it. But you know, there there are moments when you're sitting in there 24 hours a day, and you just you just you just sit there. I could sit in the cell for 24 hours and just sit in a position, you know, not able to walk around, nothing, and just watch the time go by, you know. And I remember when I first went into prison, I had to be outside the cell. You know, there was a time when I wanted to be out. And there was a time when I felt the most secure when I was banged up. So it was crazy, you know, it was really crazy, but I was I felt safe when I was banged up because of the violence, all the madness that came with that. Because you never knew what was gonna happen every day of the week. You know, guys mental you know, you know you know, you you'd you'll come out one day, the guy could have an argument with his girlfriend, uh something had gone wrong at home and, and the first person that looked at him or looked at him sideways or said anything he was the retaliate and fight you know and when you're thinking that every person on your landing is capable of as you and and capable of worse things than you it's not a nice place to be it's it's, it's um it's, it's fucking hell on earth you know i i can remember for me the i don't think there was there were some real good moments and we had some camaraderie we had some good stories and I'd, I'd go in myself and think you know what i just had a really fantastic day a fantastic meal and there were days when i went in myself and i just fucking wanted to get home i wanted to i wanted to be with my kids you know and people used to ask me what's what is what did you miss the most in my heart i miss my kids but the most important thing i, I miss more than anything else was being touched did they visit you yeah they, my kids were brilliant you know, my girls were fucking fantastic. You know, there wasn't a visit that went past that they never visited me. And 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 now I do everything for them. Um, yeah, they've been they've been superb. And I, I take my hat off to my three girls. Good to hear. Yeah. Pass me that middle book. I'm going to hold this up. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the people watching this video? You know, I, sp I spent all my time going around to, to um, schools um, and community centres. And for me, it's about telling people to start talking, you know, just to discuss their problems, to talk to someone and get rid of that anger, to stop self-medicating and deal with their problems. Because once you deal with it, you can actually move on with your life and you can create a better life, not just for yourself, but for your family. But I know, I know guys now that, that, that just refuse to do it and they're still stuck in the same old rut. They're taking drugs, they're, taking, they're drinking every day. 
And the only time they ever really grow up is when they have an heart attack. And that's when that realisation comes in. So for me, I think it's just about telling people to to empower themselves, to talk about things. And because if you don't, you're just, you're just going to stay where you are. You can't move on. It's a really good message, Terry. So if you want to check his books out, all his links are in the description box below this video. This book details much more of what happened in Grendon, where he was living with these offenders that were doing a variety of savage crimes. If you want to get more details about that, check this one out. And then we got, do you want to, do you want to lift the other one up, the, the blue one? The blue one, we've got HMP. We've got HMP there, and that's his, the inmate's um, guide to prison. So are you on Facebook, Twitter, or those? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Facebook, um, and I'm on, t I'm on Twitter, uh, Twitter, Terry Ellis 992. Um, I'm on um, Instagram, Terry Ellis 992. And I'm on, I'm on Facebook um, at Terry Ellis. And also, Living Amongst the Beasts, um, Your Views Matter, a, a little group I set up. You know, the, with the book, you know, I, I said when I, when I went into prison, you know, I never had any faith in therapy or anything. But I know that, that, that if you take the lessons from this book, the incremental lessons and the, and the epiphanies that I learned all the way through it, you have no other course of, uh, of action to go apart from deal with your problems so that's the reason I wrote it one was to get it out of my head one was to actually educate people and, 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 and show them they can turn their lives around you know so there's so many learning stories in it and, and it's been received in, in America Canada Dubai uh, we've had letters from all around the world we get messages all the time uh, and saying how much it's changed people's lives because now it's empowered them to talk it's actually empowered a few people to actually go to the police and actually talk about their abuse as well so you know what, I never expected that. But so for me, that's been the most rewarding thing because it's empowered so many people to look at people that have done the most heinous things and to see them for what they really are. They're cowards, some of them. Shooting an unarmed person is a coward. Stabbing someone is a coward. Killing a young kid, you're a coward. Being a paedophile, you're a coward. But knowing that and reading my book, once people know that, they can, it empowers them because when these people get abused, you know, we have to remember they're kids. They're young kids. You know, and they always look at their abusers as these big, these big people. And even when you get to 20, 30 years old, you still in your mindset see this person as a big monster. So it's about turning that monster upside down and, and showing these colours. And once you realise that the, the, the insecurities that they have and, and they're, they're, you know, they're not worth that, uh, invading your space and that you, you shouldn't give them any oxygen again, hopefully it will empower you to actually move on with your life. Yeah, it's a waste of mental energy to yeah. be um, focusing on them. So... Please let us know in the comments below this video what you've thought of it. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom right-hand corner. Huge thank you to people who've donated so we can produce podcasts in the studio. Donation links are down in the box as well, as well as all our socials and everything else we are doing on here. All right, give me a hug, man. This was brilliant. Yeah, cheers, Terry. Thank you, brother. Thank, thank you for coming on. Yeah, awesome, thank you. Yeah, well done. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah.